Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash G-O-M. I'm hungry. You're hungry. Five horses, five men. More than I feel like killing in an empty stomach. I know him. The small one. His name is Pulliver. He captured us and took us to Harrenhal. He killed Lommy. What the fuck's a Lommy? He was my friend. Oliver stole my sword and put it right through his neck. He still got it. What horn? My sword. Needle. Needle. Of course you named your sword. Lots of people name their swords. Lots of cunts. Well met, Fens and Oath Keepers, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, Harbinger of Nightfall, and this is episode 73. Today I'd like to welcome back Lady Rachel of House Fox. Welcome back to Game of Microphones, my lady. Thank you so much, Duncan. Hi, fellow Throners. Hope you're having a great day. Yeah, same here. And uh, just so everybody knows, Lady Rachel will be joining us regularly as much as possible. So thanks again for that. Yay, I'm so excited to be a regular. Yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode of our series rewatch, we're covering Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 1, Two Swords. And for anybody who's not aware already, this is a spoiler-filled podcast from the perspective of someone who's current on the show, Game of Thrones. That means you've seen all the way up through Season 7. So, you lived your life for the king, but there's still time to die for some chicken so you don't hear these spoilers. Warning. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. This is a great episode, huh? It's, it's really good. I watched it again today on my lunch break and i just forgot kind of how much happens in this episode so much it's a great yeah it's a great season opener for season four 
Yeah, I agree. This is a great opener. Um, get a taste of all our favorite characters, some some new characters introduced as well, and just a lot of cool stuff. The dragons are big now. And, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. They're huge. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, huge and scary. Yeah, they're nasty. <laughs> all right, so let's jump right into it. What is your number five, Lady Rachel? My number five is The Golden Hand. Nice. That yes. is my number one, so let, we can cover that together. Oh, really? Okay, cool. We can collaborate. So, yeah, yeah. obviously, this is Jamie getting his golden hand, and actually, I found this kind of interesting because, while it's about Jamie getting his golden hand, the scene really, really shows Cersei for her true personality i feel like she really kind of shines in this scene where she goes we've labored days over this yeah. hand and he goes days she goes better part of an afternoon <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and then uh talking about picel smelling like a dead cat and jamie's like i don't know what a dead cat smells like and she goes like well he smells like picel <laughs> yeah like she yeah she gets a rare comedic moment here which is kind of unusual for the cersei character normally she's screaming at people or just being wretched in a manner of ways but here you know she gets that light-hearted moment well they smell like picel you know yeah <laughs> so i mean she was just kind of bantering back and forth with him and i did pick up and i've picked this up a few times and i've just forgotten to ask people or bring it up but when she is talking to Kyburn, when um, Jamie walks in, he's asking him if all her symptoms are gone. Yeah, what do you think he's talking about? I wonder, and she was like, oh, thanks for, you know, your help. And he goes, come see me anytime. I, I felt like it was having to do with like... Moon tea? Like, uh, like, like she was pregnant or something? Yeah, yeah, I got that kind of vibe from that conversation because the way Picel was kind of like quiet and soft about it mm, you know yeah. like it, it wasn't like are you feeling better it's like have your symptoms gone away I think were his exact words that's a very particular way to ask someone if they're feeling better yeah it's yeah I, I was noticing that for the first time as well and was sort of taken or caught off guard by it wondering what they were talking about and um you know, there are rumors, certainly, that Cersei has had carnal relations with people other than Robert, for one, but other than Jamie, mainly. So uh, it's entirely well, possible. Well, I was thinking that Lancel. Right. Because they show her having sex with Lancel. Right. I, um, as far as like timeline goes, it might pan out that. Yeah, it. That, it might that happened. That's a, that's a great point too, because we, since we got interrupted with the rewatch, it's you know I'm I'm not really like <laughs> I didn't get a chance to go back and watch everything again to lead up to this moment. So I had totally forgotten that all that that Lancel stuff had happened in the relatively near past at this point. So yeah, it's entirely possible that Lancel could have knocked her up. Yeah, so it was just kind of an interesting. Just very quick dialogue. I mean, I've I've picked up on it before, but you know, when we do this rewatch, I watch the show with such a, a you know keen eye that right. I've picked up on it before, and I thought to myself like that's a weird statement, but it, I never really thought about it to you know discuss it on air per se. Sure, and sure. I, just, <laughs> I feel like it's hinting towards. She was pregnant. The seed is strong. 
Mm, the seed is strong. <laughs> I'm not sure from Lancel, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. I don't oh, know. That's great. Um, but yeah, I I love when, you know, Jamie says to her, like, you're drinking more, and she goes into, like, her, you know, little monologue of, my husband died in a tragic hunting accident. It must have been traumatic for you. Sarcasm. Yeah, it, she's great in the scene. From a pure Cersei personality perspective, we really get to see. It reminded me of the scene with her and Robert when they were talking about what held the Seven Kingdoms up for so long, and she goes, our marriage. Right, right. Yeah, that was a great laughing. scene. That was a really yeah, powerful it, scene. It echoed that scene for me, and I believe they're in the same room as that scene. Oh, wow. I think they mistaken. are, actually, now that you mention yeah. it. So, crazy. and I think maybe Cersei, um, I also love the line, like, fa- father disowned me today. Um, and, you know, at some point, I think she calls him the gold, like, you're the golden son. At some point earlier on in the episode. In the series. Or not or- in the series. Yeah. When they, you know, are talking like she had to wear a dress. She had to learn how to curtsy. And she he got to go out and fight and learn how to hunt. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I find it interesting that this you know, comment came when he's getting his golden hand. So yeah, definitely being that father disowned him, you know, is he not the golden son anymore? (laughs) Well, her response is that he can't disown you because you're all he's got. (laughs) You're forgetting Tyrion. (laughs) (laughs) That little lecher. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, but I also feel like maybe because when Jamie starts to advance on Cersei, she, Shuts him down. Yeah, she's like, super pretty cold. Quickly. And I'm wondering if it's because she just had an abortion. Oh, yeah. So I'm like be. tying. I'm trying to figure out because she. It's been it's, weeks since he's been back, yeah. supposedly. So if she was pregnant or something, yeah. That that you know those are pretty much my bullet points with this. What do you, what do you have to say about this scene? Oh man, there's a lot. Um, since Cersei was so cold to him and he just got his golden hand, I titled this my number one. It was, uh, for hands of gold are always cold, which, oh, <laughs> which nice. sort of harkens back to that, that song that was written about Tyrion and visiting his, his, his secret whore, Shay. Yes. Um, so I don't know, just lots of cool stuff here. I like how Kyburn is admiring the, uh, the quality of the piece, a work of art, really, you know, <laughs> cra- the craftsmanship is excellent. <laughs> and Jamie yes. gives him a retort. If you like it so much, you're welcome to chop off your own hand and take it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he kind of like twists it on. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Ugh. Um, he also says that a hook would be more practical and, uh, there's gotta be some sort of reference that he's making there maybe or something but it's, i'm drawing a blank on it um also i think it was it's cool it's pretty clever um oh cersei says uh that the that the the hand is elegant and it made me think of the showrunners because this is sort of an elegant solution to um a cg problem that they could have had they made the hand you can tell if you look at it slightly bigger than a regular hand and that's because it's essentially a glove that nikolai costa waldo yes. the actor puts his hand in so it's bigger than his hand um and that way that they don't have to like do any cg work or anything like that any after effects so pretty pretty slickly done yeah and it's not overly 
large too, where it's right. noticeable. I mean, it's clearly bigger than a hand, but but it's not monstrous. Like they did it's it. Not monstrous. They did it pretty well. It must be pretty thin. <laughs> yeah, 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 really thin. And think about this though: gold is so heavy. If that was actually a like a hand of gold, that much gold, that would weigh like at least ten pounds, probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, ten. What is it? Gilded pounds. steel. Oh, I think yeah. Technically, it may be gilded steel. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So they're talking about Kyburn after he kind of walks away, and and um, Jamie calls him an odd little man, and Cersei says she's grown rather fond of him, which sort of foreshadows their close relationship in the future. With definitely, you know, they end up being sort of buddy buddy with Kyburn making the ballista and doing all kinds of crazy stuff for Cersei, getting rid of Pycelle. The mountain. Yeah, creating the mountain, great, yeah, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so when she's going off on all of the things, all the reasons why um, she's drinking, she talks about how Robert died, her daughter was shipped off to Dorne, suffered through a siege, which Jamie kind of makes <laughs> makes light of because he doesn't understand like what was happening. A rather short siege. And she points out that, yeah, we pretty much thought we were all going to die. You know, so it's not fucking funny. Um, yeah. I mean, short or long, they, she was pretty certain that they were, it was over. I mean, yeah. they're sitting on the Iron the throne, throne with, with Essence of Nightshade. She's about ready to poison her son and yeah, kill herself. So serious. Like, that's just about as serious as it gets. Um, and then when the door opens, it's not the invading army it's you know it's not stannis brathian that rolls through it's tywin and she drops the the bottle (laughs) oh man such a crazy moment i can't imagine the relief she must have felt yeah like that or that or honestly the terror and then the immediate relief like to hear them outside the door even more than terror it's like horror like the horror of having to kill her own son uh, i can't even imagine yeah it's so brutal so then she also mentions that she's marrying her eldest son to a wicked little bitch from Highgarden. While <laughs> I she, know, I laughed at that. <laughs> while she's supposed to marry her brother, a renowned pillow biter. Pillow biter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought that's such a hilarious term. So funny. Um, so and she has such an arrogant way of talking in this scene. Oh yeah, like, in she's every like scene. Kind of yeah, she's kind of flipping her hand around and, you know, swinging her wine glass around. Yep. She's pure Cersei in, or Cersei in this scene. Perfect casting, too. Lena Headey, like, really nails she's her whole attitude. I can't imagine this show with different actors. Have you ever seen the video of when she appears? I think it's on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Oh, she, yeah, 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 yeah. Jimmy yeah, Kimmel... Yeah. What is she doing on there, <laughs> makes though? Makes her... Jimmy Kimmel makes her talk to him like she was Cersei, so he would ask her questions and she would respond as Cersei <laughs> would respond. And she nails and it's it. It's so too. funny. And she nails it. It's great. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to um, talk to each other Game of Thrones style. Okay? All right, so. Shall we begin? Yes. How, do you? Should I pour the drink, or uh, do don't you? Touch it. How does? Okay, don't touch it. All right, all right. <laughs> We've already begun. Yes. Right, here we go. Thank you.
That is a lovely tie. It's a shame it's around such a worthless neck. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming today. I know you have a busy schedule doing sex with your brother. It must be so exhausting. Yeah, I'll post it on Facebook. So if you yeah, guys want to check awesome. it out, facebook.com slash podcast, and uh, you'll be able to find that video linked up there. Um, so we got a couple scenes with, um, with Jamie talking about staying or leaving the Kingsguard in this episode and obviously Tywin wants him to leave the Kingsguard and it, and there's some background information with that about how um, basically the Mad King Ares screwed over the Lannisters and intentionally made Jaime a member of the Kingsguard just to, to fuck with Tywin basically to eliminate his heir from the picture of being able to yes. inherit the, the uh, Casterly Rock and the Lordship and everything so Tywin sees Jamie's hand being cut off as an opportunity to reverse that and to put Jamie back in the in in line to inherit Casterly Rock. But Jamie, you know, in the scene with Tywin, doesn't he seems to like not even understand that whole aspect of it. He's he's content with being a glorified bodyguard, as Tywin puts it. But here it's his ulterior motive is revealed. He may understand what Tywin was saying, but it seems like he really just wants to keep fucking his sister. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Staying yeah. in the Kingsguard means I live right here in the Red Keep with you, you know. And uh, so that that pretty much explains his motivation for wanting to stay in the Kingsguard. And it's pretty it's pretty messed up how, uh, you know, he he makes an advance on Cersei and she pushes him back and and um, he says, "When you know, I've been back for weeks and." she kind of like walk turns away and he's like something's changed she says everything's changed and uh she's she's super pissed at him for for leaving her and being gone and and ha- letting all this stuff happen while he was away all these these hardships that she's been through and she's selfishly refusing to even acknowledge her love's struggle um in favor of dwelling in her own pain which is just kind of selfish of her and true to the character for sure yes for you know, sure it's pretty sad because he really really wanted to get back you know he's like he said every day i was a prisoner i plotted my escape every day i murdered, I murdered people. for yeah i murdered yeah, people for you so i could be here with you and he not only did he murder people but he was essentially a kinslayer he he killed his own blood his cousin to escape rob's ca- captivity um at least to try so, yeah, he really went to some crazy lengths to do that, even killing a Lannister, you know, pretty serious. True. So for pretty her to just, set. yeah, for her to just blow it all off and be mad, like, he didn't know he was going to be captured, like he said, so. Yeah, and, I mean, her only, her only really real reason for it is that you took too long. And it's like, what the heck yeah. does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty <laughs> fucked. But can't really expect her to be thinking, um from a logical perspective she's always done does everything based on emotion you know that's very true yeah so that pretty much wraps up my number one and your number five uh how about your number four what about your number five? Oh, right number five yeah 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 that's a good idea huh <laughs> maybe who knows <laughs> 
<laughs> my number five is Two Swords. Like okay. The episode title. Okay. Episode starts off with a cold open, which uh, for anybody who's unaware is when you jump right into the episode before the title sequence. And it's not something that Game of Thrones does a lot. There's only a few times where they've done a cold open. So it's, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's three. Oh, all right. Or four. Yeah, it's very, very rare. Yeah. I, I think I might piggyback on you because this is part of it's kind of my number my number one. I split the two swords up, but sure, I might jump in with you because some of this is my number one too. Perfect. So um, the scene opens without dialogue. There's no dialogue in this whole opening scene, which is intense on its own. But to make it even more intense, the reigns of Castamir is sadly playing as House Stark is symbolically destroyed by the melting of the heirloom ice. You know what's funny, though, is it starts off with Stark music and then it turns to reigns of Castamir. Oh, man, I totally missed that. Yeah, yeah. It starts off. So as he's walking... As he's uh, pulling the sword, as he's pulling ice out of the wolf um, pelt, or the sheath, I guess, yeah. it's playing the Stark music. And as he walks over, it's playing the Stark music. And when he throws it in the fires, when it turns to Reigns of Castamere. Oh, it's so brutal. Ramin Jawadi is a genius. He really is. He there. really, really is. The, the minute details and alterations that he makes and the various themes and motifs to reflect the emotion and and gravity of each individual scene is really impressive like he is he's a serious professional ah so the handle is struck off of ice and tywin looks contented like a mission long in the making has been accomplished and then the wolf sheath is burned like you were saying and tywin smiles for one of the only times we ever see him smile on the show and then uh, it cuts to the main credits that is an intense moment right there and no words even had to be said to convey the gravity of what was happening in this whole scene very good filmmaking oh it was so i mean it was so sadly beautiful because like you see ice kind of melting and the way it's shimmering and the heat's coming off of it and then they're pouring it out the just the cinematography of that whole scene is just so well done and i've i've said this over and over again so you can call me a broken record if you want (laughs) i really really feel that this show some of the most epic scenes are the wordless scenes agreed yeah definitely Definitely. And this is a great example of that, too. Yeah. So I have a note that I find it really interesting that we're starting off season four with a very visual reference of ice and fire. Oh, great. Not just from like the perspective that ice is named ice, but the the Starks are, you know, the northern people and the Lannisters their sigil is a lion. And in our in our world, you know, the lion is a symbol of the sign Leo, and Leo is a fire sign. Oh, so I thought that was yeah, kind of interesting. Summer. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was kind of just interesting as well. And, you know, we actually kind of get a glimpse of 
the, the episode is named Two Swords, but we actually get a glimpse of four swords in this episode. We get Ice. We meet, while it's not named yet, Oathkeeper. Yep. We meet Widow's Whale, which we just get a very short glimpse of in this particular scene while it's still cooling. And we get Needleback at the end. Yep. So I, I kind of, we have two Stark swords appearing and we have two Lannister swords appearing in this, in this um, short, short little scene. Yeah, very interesting. And we we see other swords too, but nothing like that's like significant. You know, like we see Correct. the hound sword, but we don't have a name for it or anything like that. But sure, I, I don't think he has named his sword because when he cunts name their when, swords. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then I know we see we see Jon Snow, but just specifically those we see three in one scene at the very beginning of the episode. One of which is being decimated to create the Lannister sword. So it's kind of symbolizing right. the death of the Stark household. But then at the very end, we find Needle and it's kind of like the rebirth. Getting one back. Yeah. And I, I really think that Arya is kind of the Avenger of the Starks. So to end that, you know, very symbolic first scene to end that episode with her getting her sword back is very foretelling. She's the Tony Stark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't even realize that reference. (laughs) Iron Man, Iron Woman. (laughs) That's great. Oh, you know what's crazy? What? That coin she carries around is made of iron. Oh yeah. True. Iron coin for the, uh, for the iron maiden, you could say. Yes, um, and with Reigns of Castamere playing in the background while he's, you know, melting down ice is just so symbolic of an, of a land of the Lannisters. Another taking, Lannister victory. Yeah, they're obliterating kind of what he thinks they are obliterating another house because he does. Sansa's a Lannister at this point. Arya is presumed dead. John is. A brother of the Night's Watch, and it's presumed that Bran and Rickon are dead as well. So he right, is, that's and, a great and Rob point. is dead, and Catelyn's dead. So in his mind, he has con- he has wiped out the Stark that's line, which is great, not point. true. And so yeah. it's like after he waited until because he's had ice since season one. He waited until after all the Starks were wiped out, or so he thought to to um, destroy the sword. I wonder if there was some reason that he did that. I think for the, I think he didn't like, it was like a celebratory situation. I'm going to wait until all of my Starks, all the Starks are dead. That's the bottle of champagne that he's been saving. (laughs) Yeah. That's the Dom Perignon (laughs) that you crack open. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, these four swords each had a big moment in this episode. The destruction of ice, the creation of Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper, and the return of Needle, which is awesome. Yes, Um, yes. So next scene after the credits, it cuts back to Jamie inspecting Oathkeeper. And it's beautiful, and he notices that it looks fresh forged and... He said he's confused by this because, like he mentions, no one's made a Valyrian steel sword since the the Doom of Valyria. As so, Tywin says, you know, there are only three smiths who know how to rework 
Valyrian steel, and uh, the finest of them was in Volantis. So he invited him to King's Landing to work with this. And <laughs> and Jamie's like, where did you get this much Valyrian steel? He, sh- <laughs> he should know, you know, although he, I think he, he does, fled, he fled the just... city before Ned was killed, though. So oh, that's true. Maybe he didn't put two and two together because they had that conflict in the street where Ned got stabbed through the leg and Jamie sort of left from there, essentially. So that's right. So Tywin's response is classic from someone who no longer had need of it. You know, <laughs> dead Ned doesn't need that sword anymore. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, so Jamie replies to him, you've wanted one of these in the family for a long time. And now we have two, Tywin replies. And he's even more confused by this, two? And <laughs> Tywin, if Jamie didn't know that it was ice beforehand, he should know now. He replies to him, the original weapon was absurdly large. Which is true. It's it's very, very wide for a blade. It's like, I, I have a couple replicas of the sword, and it's like literally as wide as my hand. my The palm of my hand. It's really freaking wide. But um, Isn't it really tall, too? Because I remember, I'm not sure how tall um, Sean Bean is, but... When he's standing there about ready to cut off the, the deserter of the Night's Watch in the very first episode, the the hilt comes like up to his like mid chest and he's holding it in the ground and it's seems really long too. I mean it's almost like a decorative sword for just that, just executions and it's not really a sword that you could fight with on, on the battlefield. Typically it would not be with the weight of steel, but considering it's Valyrian steel, the blade is very light, and you would be able to fight oh. with it, which is cool. There's a, a great YouTube channel called Shadiversity. Uh, this guy, this Australian guy, I think uh, Shad, goes and, and analyzes all like he, he does like all kinds of medieval stuff, and he, he does analyses of the castles in Game of Thrones to see if they make sense and would be functional castles. Etc. But he does a, a really good video about the sword ice, where he talks about how it's not quite as long as you would expect a, a two-handed greatsword to be, but it's much wider and would be balanced differently than a typical longsword. So it, it's, it's about the length of a longsword, but you, considering its weight, if it was steel, you'd have to use... Um, like two-handed greatsword moves for it. So you'd be stuck with this one specific move set, but then at the same time, you wouldn't have the length that a a two-handed greatsword would have, so you'd be at a disadvantage. But he forgets to take into account that the the sword would be made from Valyrian steel, which would make it functional as as a long sword. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't 
win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Interesting. I totally forgot that Valyrian steel was supposed to be really light. Yeah, really light. And um, in the books, it's actually described as being even bigger, uh, a full two-handed long sword with or great sword, I should say, that's even longer with a big long handle and everything. It's pretty cool. So there's that. And uh, definitely check out that video by Shadiversity. Um, we should probably post that too, huh? Probably. Yeah, because it's cool. So I'll do that. And um, so we learned here that the Lannisters have wanted Valyrian steel in their family for a long time, which made me think about how at one point the Lannister family did have a Valyrian steel blade named Bright Roar, and it was lost in the doom of Valyria. And Tywin's brother, the youngest of the siblings, Garion Lannister, he was actually lost to the doom while searching for the ancestral blade, Bright Roar. I have an excerpt from excerpt from a, a wiki of ice and fire to read. Oh, nice. Circa 291 AC, Garion went on a quest to find House Lannister's ancestral Valyrian steel sword, Bright Roar, and, and any other treasures that may have survived the doom of Valyria. Almost a decade passed after his ship, the Laughing Lion, left Lannisport, but Garion never returned. Lord Tywin sent men to look for his lost brother, and they traced him as far as Volantis, where half his crew had deserted him because of his intent to sail into the Smoking Sea. He had been forced to buy slaves to replace them. So that's the end of Garion Lannister, as far as we know. Wow. That's from a, a wiki of Ice and Fire. So it's like a compilation of, of book uh, stuff, which is kind of cool. I love cool. that website. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's so good. You can spend hours on it. Yeah, totally. And then we have um, Jamie talking about how he will have to be using his left hand, right? So Tywin tells him, you know, you'll have to train your left hand. And he, he says, any decent swordsman knows how to use both hands. But he's sort of covering for his lack of ability with uh, with bravado and bluster here in this moment. Because we, as we know, Completely. he can't use his left hand at all. <laughs> Uh, that becomes sort of a theme throughout this episode where he's like pretending that he can still fight. Like when Marin Trant tells him, well, I've, I've become accustomed to guarding the king when you've, since you've been gone. He's like, thanks, but I'll be taking care of that. But obviously Marin is worried because he's missing his sword hand. <laughs> so he doesn't think that Jamie will still be capable of protecting the king. I mean, even Joffrey in that scene is worried about it. He's like, you can't protect anyone with that. Right. And he goes, I'll use my left hand now, your grace. It makes more of a contest. Yeah, another great line with full of bravado and his his confidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and in this scene, I mean, he even says to Tywin, you know, it's... He, Tywin says, well, you won't be as good. And he goes, it doesn't really matter as long as I'm better than everyone else. Right. Yeah. He was really <laughs> good beforehand. Oh, man. And I love his last line. You know, he's like, well, supper would be nice. Yeah. He's always got something <laughs> smart ass to say. 
totally. like the king of smart ass remarks in the show. Oh man. But I do like the scene that you're talking about now because when when Tywin is telling him you're going to return back to Casterly Rock and you know take take the seat as my heir and Jamie goes Kingslayer Oathbreaker man without honor now you're asking me to break another oath. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's very telling about how really Jamie kind of feels about those titles because you know in the earlier seasons before we got to know more in depth about his character and especially obviously before his bath scene with Brienne, mm-hmm. it seemed to be like he kind of relished in those titles. Like yeah, he like, liked when fuck. people. Yeah. And you know, the scene with Brienne in the bathtub is very, you know, the most telling of it all that it really does bother him. It really does get to him. And again, in this scene here, we see that it, irritates him that he is asked to hold so many oaths and be forced to break some of them because of all of the oaths that he has to take they start contradicting each other yeah you made a really good point about how he seemed to like revel in those names and it's sort of like he had adopted Tyrion's mantra of wearing it like armor so nobody could hurt him with it absolutely um so it's obvious at this point, Jamie really doesn't want any further dishonor. And like you said, this is after his fevered bathhouse revelation to Brienne and his new nuanced takes on oaths to Cat. So we know at this point that he's more complex than we originally thought. And he's certainly not just a bad guy who doesn't care about honor or what people think of him. He really is like a tormented soul. I Yeah, and I mean, I have in my notes here when Brienne is back in King's Landing and they're down by the godswood looking at Sansa. I mean, Brienne is still holding Jamie to his vow yep. about keeping Sansa safe, getting the Stark girls home and keeping his oath. Yeah. And Jamie kind of brushes her off at this point and he's like, Sansa's a Lannister, Arya's probably dead, their mother's dead. What do you want me to do? And she kind of leans into him. She's like, do you honestly think Sansa being in King's Landing is the safest place for her? And again, he kind of realizes like, man, she's right. I I do have this oath to keep. So just yeah. again, another great example of Jamie understanding who he is and that it does bother him. But I think he's so used to just kind of brushing oaths off here and there that he was going to do it to Brienne, and Brienne's not the person to do that to. Right, and uh, I think this this scene in particular sort of stands out to him. He must saturate into his mind after the fact, and he realizes that she's like the epitome of one dedicated to keeping her oaths, and obviously that plays a part in the naming of the sword and him choosing to pass it on to her, and as well as the set of armor, you know? It's, totally. Speaking of that scene, <laughs> he reacts to her saying, "Are you sure you're not a Lannister?" <laughs> you know, which which is kind of funny because obviously I thought it was too. I yeah. think it foreshadows them hooking up. <laughs> yeah, it foreshadows their sort of special relationship that they make because we know he loves the ladies in his family, <laughs> which is horrible. But, and she's blonde. <laughs> yeah, and so whereas Cersei mirrors Jamie in terms of beauty, um, from from child from youth they always looked very alike and they were both very handsome and beautiful and widely known for their good looks 
Um, on the other hand, Brienne mirrors Jamie in terms of his in terms of her capability and swordsmanship. So there are parallels between uh, you know there's there's more than one reason why it would make sense for her to be considered a Lannister, <laughs> totally. you know, which is kind of funny. So stubborn, quick-witted, right? You know, and so naturally, if Jamie can no longer function, and there's an, a Lannister equivalent with his type of fighting capability, it makes sense for him to pass on the the blade and the armor to Brienne in this circumstance. And what an honor for Brienne. You know, I think it's the next episode that she gets Oath Keeper. But what an honor for Brienne to receive that Valyrian steel sword. Yeah, that is not because, an everyday occurrence. No, no. And I'm sure we'll talk about it on our next <clears throat> rewatch. But, you know, it was made from ice and she's using it to protect the Stark girls and find yep. Arya. So I, I just loved that. Very poetic. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So that pretty much wraps up uh, my number five and the, the, um, the two swords dialogue. So let's move on to your number four. My number four is John. Awesome. Um, I, I loved this like you said at the beginning, like we kind of get re reacclimated with all of the characters. They don't really focus on one specific character. This episode, we kind of touch upon everybody. And I, I love this, you know, ongoing scene with John when he learns of Rob's death and he talk he's talking to Sam about, he's been jealous of Rob his whole life. He was better at me than at everything. I wanted to hate him, but I never could. I, I thought that was just really powerful and it it stems into kind of John why he has kind of a chip on his shoulder, why he thinks it's a great honor to carry his house's sigil. He has such a great relationship with his brother, but there's always been this dissonance with his brother. Yeah, and I love how Sam was able to to put it in perspective to John. Because John has like you said, he's had the, he he has this chip on his shoulder. He's grew up on the in the castle. He when he first showed up to Castle Black, he had trouble relating to, to people. He didn't realize how privileged he was, and he would sort of take it out on the other guys, um, not understanding the way that he came across to them as like this this privileged punk who's really good at everything and like is grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth essentially. Castle forged steel, you know, high quality garb and and armor and whatnot. So he's talking here about how much he he loved it, but also hated Rob at the same time. Basically, sometimes I wanted to hate him, you know, because he was better than me at everything, and better at swords, at fighting, at at riding, at girls. Um, and I'm just thinking that, like, damn, he must have been really good at, at fighting and stuff. If he was better than John, because John is like, he's like superstar fighter. At least right. he turns into, he develops into one for sure. I think he develops into one because I, I think what happens is, is Rob was, was tr- and John were trained in the traditional manner of having a master at arms, mm-hmm. training them in the art of sword play. And Rob, you know, used that strategy to Tyrion's point, you know, this kid had never lost a battle and yet he's dead, you know, right. because they basically cheated. But, you know, he was an clearly an amazing fighter 
But I think what makes John a better fighter is the time that he spent with the wildlings in that kind of raw, unruly, just yeah. wild nature. It's essentially takes over. It's like Rob is a boxer and John is a mixed martial artist, basically. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. yes. Influences from various styles playing in to give him a more well rounded um grasp on fighting as a whole as opposed to like a singular um perspective coming from one discipline where like like Rob would would have from being trained as a uh, by a master in arms like you're saying. So that's kind of cool. Going back to Sam, it, it was kind of funny how how it sort of put things in perspective for John again. He was like, you know, I loved him, but I wanted to hate him at times. And Sam's like, well, sometimes I want to hate you, John. You know, <laughs> you're much better at me than me at fighting and girls Except and all for reading. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that case, I bet Sam's miles better. <laughs> like you said last right. episode. Uh, yeah. So that was just kind of funny seeing everything put into perspective in that way by Sam and John sort of has a realization again of like his place in the world and at the wall and the way people perceive him versus the way that he perceives himself and everything like that. So he's learning and just uh, becoming a better person every step of the way. Yeah. And just to keep going through this scene, I like when Sam says, okay, you know, they're ready for you. And John the next, it cuts over to the next scene, and John is facing the, you know, the Night's Watch Council, I guess I'll call them. I don't know if they have a specific name, but all the men up there, minus Maester Eamon, are the ones that end up killing John. True. Um, so he's he's up there answering to the men that end up killing him. Is this our first time seeing uh, seeing Janice Slint up at the wall? Yes. Oh, I hate that yes. guy. Oh, I hate that guy. He's so bad. And... I I love when he goes, the boy must die. And Maester Eamon goes, if we beheaded every ranger who lay with a girl, the wall would be manned by headless men. Yep. And I thought that was very telling. Ageless about, wisdom from Maester Eamon. Yeah. And then, um, you know, Janos is kind of giving him shit about... Being a wildling, he's like, I, I fought with the wildlings, I ate with the wildlings, I laid with a wildling girl. And, you know, Janos is just being that pompous ass that he is. A bastard son of a traitor, yeah, what would you, you expect? expect? And so I love John's response to Janos. And he says, well, have you ever been beyond the wall, sir? Like, <laughs> yeah. You don't even know what you're talking about. You literally just got here. And <laughs> and then Janos says, like, I was the, you know, I, I commanded the, the city, city watch, watch of King's Landing, boy. And he goes, and now you're here. You must not have been very good at your job. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love that, like, because he's just such, he's, he's just reprehensible. I don't know. He's just, oh he's my just God. I, Janos is, anno he's just annoying. I love the way John tells Mance's plan. It shows that he really was the whole time. Because I always like to watch these rewatches. I think I've said this before, as if I was watching it as a first-time viewer, but with mm -hmm. the knowledge of knowing what happens before and after. And when John kills Corn Halfhand and starts his relationship with Ingrid, as a first-time viewer... 
there there is some times in those scenes that you think maybe John has really gone to the dark side. And I feel like in this scene, John basically laying out all of Mance's strategy to the Night's Watch solidifies that everything he was doing beyond the wall with the wildlings was for the benefit of the Night's Watch. Was for this moment to get this intel back to them. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty And then he says, do you intend to execute me? And he's saying this to the three men that end up, you know, executing him, (laughs) assassinating him. him. More like, and yeah. then my my last point on this is, um, you know, when Eamon says, you know, the boy was telling the truth, and he goes, "Well, how would you possess such magic?" And he goes, "It's you know simple. I grew up in King's Landing." Yep, and that that was <laughs> a cool line that. too, because um, that's our sort of the viewer of the TV show. It's like their first hint at who Eamon Targaryen was, you know. We don't know that yes. he's a Targaryen at this point, but the fact that he grew up in King's Landing makes us wonder, like, oh, who is Wait, this guy? Wait, are you guy? sure we don't know? I think we know. I Re- think we know. Oh, do we? I think we do. I think that, because that, that conversation with John happened back when, kind oh, of around when Sam right, first arrived. right, right, right. You're right. Yeah, when because they're talking about, how he, it's right when he wants to, to flee the wall to go help Rob in the war. Yes. And Eamon's like, I've had to deal with, you know, I've had to live with the horrible things happening to my family and I didn't abandon my post, basically. Yes. <laughs> he's like, wait, yes. who are you? You know, and that's when he goes into the whole, uh, you know, Eamon Targaryen thing. Yeah, like, my, turning my down father the crown. was so-and-so. And yeah, it's for, crazy. I forget the whole like, lineage. <laughs> yeah. Did you, I loved that, Total sidebar. I loved that. Did you post that family tree of the Targaryens on Game of Microphones, or did I see that? Yeah, else? I posted that. Um, George R. R. Martin had posted it, and it's like something from the uh, the upcoming Fire and Blood book, and it's like a big Targaryen lineage thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it's awesome. It's creepy though how all the like the lines are connected. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's all like brothers incest. and sisters, and yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's funny. So yeah, there's there's a lot of other stuff to uh, break down in this scene too. Um, it's good to see John healed for one. Last we saw him, obviously he he was stuck full of arrows. So that's one way of ter- determining a little time has passed. John clarifies that he didn't murder Corin Halfhand, but that that he wanted him to kill him to infiltrate, basically to prove he was worth uh, to prove that he was. Um, worthy of joining the wildlings, like Mance, essentially. So, uh, Alistair says, don't talk about Corrin like you knew him. I was his, he was my brother. And John says to him, well, then you'd know he would do anything to protect the wall. And Alistair's yes. like, oh, damn it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> totally shut him down. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was pretty funny. Great comeback. And do you, like uh, like John's fighting style has been influenced by the wildlings. His philosophy is also starting to be influenced as well, as you can tell by him referring to the wildlings not as the wildlings, but the free folk. 
Yes. You know, and listen to him. He even talks like a wildling now. And that's where he goes into, I, I talk like a wildling. I ate with the wildlings, climbed the wall with the wildlings, etc. So that's cool. You can like, he's, he's starting to approach that perspective that, that Sam has gained by his, his bond with Gilly. John's bond with Igrit and with Tormund and his other friends from up there. Um, he's starting to, starting to realize that they're men too. That they are the you know the realms of men. That the Seven Kingdoms are a realm. The the North is a realm. They're all men. Yeah, it's a it's a fight against the living and the dead. And this is kind of the start of his story arc with yep. you know coming into the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, going and getting the wildlings from hard home and letting them through the wall. This is kind of the start of that. I feel right. This is, he's starting to find his purpose other than being a man of the night's watch. He's finding a bigger purpose in, in kind of a parallel way, the way that Danny did, like we talked about last episode. Yep. This is starting yeah, exactly. his arc of his purpose, his, his ideology and, more instead of just yes. being a military leader, being an an ideological icon, you know. Absolutely, it's you know the start of his journey to basically convince people that stop fighting each other. This is stupid. We have a huge threat on the horizon. <laughs> like, yeah, let's. We need to. We need to band together as the living because the dead are coming. This is when that story arc for John, I think, kind of starts this episode. Yep. And it's not there yet. Not quite there yet. But um, speaking of huge threats on the horizon, you know, Maester Eamon was informed by Sam last week that the White Walkers were coming and he sent out all those ravens. And so if that wasn't bad enough, <laughs> this week, John is is informing everybody that Mance Raider is marching on the wall with 100,000 wildlings. <laughs> Impossible, you know. He's united the Thens, the Hornfoots, the Ice River clans. He has giants fighting for him. And I love that Janos, yeah, Janos totally writes that off. Yeah, he's like, giants, that's bullshit. It's sort of like the way that Tyrion writes off Grumpkins and Snarks in season one when they're heading up to the wall as well. Totally, that's so true. But until you're beyond the wall, you don't even know, you know? Like he tells to to Janos, have you ever been beyond the wall? Like you were saying, so that's pretty crazy. Well, and it also foreshadows Janos when the wildlings do attack. That Too Janos bad he didn't get complete... eaten by a giant. That would have been cool. <laughs> I know. He has a total mental breakdown when he sees total the Total mental. Oh, yeah. He did He's get like... to see them. He saw them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's and he, that's when he goes and hides in the kitchen with Gilly like and soils himself. <laughs> yep. Soils himself. Big time. That's so funny. What a, what a loser. He talks a big game, but obviously he... He's a total pussy. Yeah, total pussy. <laughs> so um, we're learning about these massive threats. There's the revelation that not only do giants exist, but they're on the way <laughs> to, to crush us, <laughs> which is hilarious. John goes on to talk about how there's a band of wildlings that are already south of the wall, led by Tormund Giantsbane, and how he killed their warg and three others. They're the ones that shot him full of arrows. And um, their orders are to attack Castle Black from the south when Mance hits from the north and this is an interesting p 
plan, which you can tell is laid out by Mance because it's very strategic um, with his knowledge of the, 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 the Night's Watch and of Castle Black. He knows that Castle Black was designed with no southern wall specifically so that it could not be defended from from attacks from the south, which seems crazy, but it's actually kind of a smart design plan. Um, so I have some information about why that is as well. Oh, cool. The um, Basically what happened was that the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch ended up declaring himself a king and rebelling against the southern the kingdoms so i can't remember which king it was but the he rode north to basically take back the 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 knight's watch and eliminate the uh, the 13th lord commander so i have a little excerpt from a wiki of ice and fire again to give a little more detail about that After the defeat of the 13th Lord Commander, the rule was enforced that castles of the Night's Watch along the wall should never be fortified against approach from the south, so that they cannot oppose the lands south of the wall which they are meant to defend. The downfall of the 13th Lord Commander also resulted in the strict enforcement of the rule that the Night's Watch is meant to be politically neutral as guardians who do not rule the wall, but who serve the realms of men." You know, they'll take no wives, they'll wear no crowns. This could all largely be a result of the this rebellion of the 13th Lord Commander who took a wife and rebelled against the kingdoms. So, it's kind of interesting that they're vulnerable from the south, and Mance takes advantage of this by creating a massive fire to distract the, the, the Night's Watch from the north while he has teams sneak in from the south to attack unguarded basically (laughs) yeah and i also don't really think that mance or Tormund really believed that there were a thousand men at castle black yeah probably (laughs) i i think they mance would know i mean john john is a pretty noble guy i mean he's a stark for him to tell a lie it's probably very uncomfortable for him and i would think that they would pick up on that yeah, probably. I mean, what, even, even was it George Washington told a lie about the cherry tree or something? Was that him or yeah. was that Abraham Lincoln? Or I can't remember. No, it was George Washington. Yeah, so even he told a lie at one point. So Yeah. No, but that's, that's very interesting about the wall or, or the castles not being banned from the south because it completely prevents, you know, a, a king being declared... In the Night's Watch, I like I like that. I love a wiki of ice and fire. Yeah, they have it's so, so much good, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add about that about that scene? No, that's my number four. So, what's your number four? My number four: a girl has a sword, as oh, opposed okay. to a girl has no name. <laughs> so, the, of course, uh, Arya gets her sword back this episode. Needle. So yes, a girl has a sword. <laughs> Uh, what a, just a, an awesome scene with with her and the hound as they come upon this tavern, right? They're riding along, and Arya wants a horse, <laughs> and and she's asking about what little girl doesn't want a pony, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> Give that's, her some credit. <laughs> that's so funny. The hound's kind of laughing at her about it, and we find out that he didn't steal anything from from Joffrey before he left. 
Um, and he says, you know, I'm not a, f- I'm not a thief. Arya says to him, you're fine with murdering little boys, but thieving is beneath you. And he says, a, a man's, man's got to have, have a code. code. <laughs> yep. Great line where he was following orders from the king. He wouldn't have just killed the kid. Like, you know, so he had to obey his orders, but he also, he's, he's not a thief. So that's kind of cool. A little, little depth for Sandor there. It makes you wonder, because we don't really know too much about him yet at this point. No, this is actually my number two, and I labeled it "What the fuck, salami." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll I'll plug in where I can. <laughs> Sounds good. So they're they come upon this tavern and they're hiding in the bushes, creeper style, and Arya sees uh, <laughs> sees Polliver come out and she sees Needle. Like, what are the odds? You know, there's the whole seven kingdoms, but they happen upon this spot. It's destiny calling that she needs this sword back. They're, they want food, right? So they're, they're showing up there and Arya's like, I'm hungry and you're hungry. And the hound says, five horses, five men, more than I feel like killing on an empty stomach, <laughs> which is another great line. <laughs> and that's when Oliver walks out. And so she's like, he killed Lamy. That's when your line pops up. <laughs> what the fuck, salami? <laughs> just every time yeah. I just like burst out laughing. What the laughing. fuck, salami? Yeah, so good. So he he was my friend. Oliver stole my sword and put it right through his neck. He still got it. As she sees her sword and Hound's like, got what? Oh, and that like desperation on her face, that like desire, it's, you can feel it in her eyes. Maisie Williams has the most expressive eyes. (laughs) Yeah, she really does. She has some huge eyes. Like she, big, beautiful brown eyes with those eyebrows. And it's like, she uses them in her acting because Definitely. you can feel that they widen like want <gasps> that desire like i am getting that sword yeah and with determination she starts walking down there she's like i'm taking it back and yeah the hound is like get back here and it's sort of like <laughs> the last episode when she just jumps off the horse and goes over to kill that guy <laughs> that's eating with the phrase um you know exactly she sort of just he, the hound's still talking and he realizes that she's not even standing in the bushes anymore she's already like almost at the front she has door. her own agenda i mm-hmm. mean it's and he's just gonna pick up the pieces <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I do like in this scene, though, that Arya kind of surrenders to the fact that she she does need the Hound at this point. She's That's like, true. I have nobody. I, my parent, my mom's dead, my dad's dead, I don't know where my sister is. Like, because when she's asking for the pony, she's like, what do you think, I'm going to run off? Like, where am I going to go? <laughs> yeah. I, you're... She kind of surrenders that thought of, She's like, like you're killing my stragglers, like, I need you to help you know, finish yeah. off all these crowds. Yeah, you're protecting me. And so I I kind of liked that. I wouldn't definitely. say it was a soft moment, but it was definitely a moment into her thought process of becoming more accepting of the fact that her and the Hound are going to be together for a while. Yeah. And so before Arya actually walks to the building, there's another moment that we can't skip over, which is really good, which we already referenced slightly. Um, the hound says, she says, she's still got it. And the hound says, got what? My sword, needle. Needle. Of course you named your sword. Lots of people name their swords. Lots of cunts. (laughs) 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 Such a classic moment. So perfect. It's so the hound. He hates that shit. Yeah. So funny. 
one of my favorite conversations from the whole show. So there, every once in a while, you get some real gems with dialogue here. Like George R. R. Martin has just these moments of brilliance, <laughs> which is great. So Arya rushes off towards the thing, towards the tavern, and the hound catches her, and and he's like, "Get back here, you know!" And she's, my brother gave me that sword, and he kind of like steps in between her and the building and he like really pushes her back and he's like, I don't care if he ate your friend. We're not going in there <laughs> right as the door opens. But it's also funny, I don't care if he ate your friend because in the same episode we get the Thens introduced who are cannibals and are like cannibals. Pro- probably would have eaten her friend. The marbling is amazing on these sodas. <laughs> you really should try. Crow. <laughs> yeah. Try crow. <laughs> so uh they the door opens behind the hound and it's this shrimpy little guy compared to Sandor and Sandor turns around and basically has to go in at this point. Otherwise it would be weird. So he walks in and you can tell right off the bat, these guys are all real winners uh, as they sexually assault a tavern wench over in the corner there. Yeah. Uh, which is fucked up. In front up. of her dad. Yeah. Yeah. Super. These guys are winners big time. Uh, so we, we, do, we definitely right off the bat, we don't want, Sandor to kill them. <laughs> like we're we're not we're gonna we're not gonna be disappointed when Sandor kills all these bastards, basically. No. <laughs> so uh they go over and this whole scene is amazing. Obviously Sandor is recognizable with his burned half face and his just monstrous size. So Polliver recognizes him right off the bat. I know you, you're the hound. Pour our new friend some ale. And he's he's like trying to play it friendly, at least to start. He's uh talking about how he's been stuck with 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 Gregor, your brother, meaning no offense, none, none taken. taken. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking about how he, the mountain's like great at what he does, but it's just torture, torture, torture. You know, he spent enough time putting the hammer to people. You start feeling like a carpenter. It drains the fun right out of it. <laughs> and what's life without a little fun? And Arya's just like, like this guy's so you're, gross. You're disgusting. Yeah, and the hound is just like, Ugh, as well. You know, you can tell he doesn't want to fucking deal with this guy. Um, so what's life without a little fun? And he's like, I don't need to tell you that, huh? And like sort of looks at Arya. And so hound plays along and basically pretends like he's been raping Arya, which is fucked up. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, she's all right. I've had better, you know? And it's like, well, and I don't even know if Arya understands what's going on at that point. But, uh... Yeah, she's just looking... She's just, like, trying to figure out how... I think in that point, she doesn't really even care what they're talking about. She's... Just trying to figure out how to get needle. (laughs) How am I going to get needle back? (laughs) Yeah, she sees it. It's right there. Like it's just as close as as Rob and her mom were the last episode, where she could like reach out and touch it. You know, she could reach out and touch needle at that moment. So then that's when start stuff starts to get sort of tense between Polliver and the Hound. He's like, you know what? You should come with us. You know, we there's always something hidden hidden away to for us to find, and these are the king's colors. So nobody stands in his way. That means nobody stands in our way. You know, gold, silver, daughters, anything we want. And uh, and Sandor responds, "Fuck the king," which my favorite line of his. Uh, yeah, and it, when he says it now, and when he says yeah. it at the Battle of the Blackwater. Fuck <laughs> water, like, bring me wine. <laughs> <laughs> and so the camera cuts to Arya, and she's like, 
she's smiling, you know, she's like, hey, fuck the king, fuck Joffrey. And she grins. I know, and her little, her bright little eyes are just glimmering, they're glittering yeah, yeah. that. She's just like, ha ha. <laughs> and so, uh, so, um, is like, you know, when, when I heard that Joffrey's dog abandoned the Battle of Blackwater, I didn't believe it, but here you are. And he's like, here I am. Bring me one of those chickens. You know, and they sort of like start arguing over the chickens. <laughs> and he's like, well, how about we trade, you know, one of our chickens for one of your little chickens? And like looks at Arya and <laughs> the hound is, it is, oh, and he, oh, it's even gross, like even worse too. He's like, Lowell over there likes him a bit broken in, you know, and the guy's like, <laughs> like kind of waves, you know, it's so fucked up. And uh, that's the hound's next epic line of the moment. You're a talker. Listening to talkers makes me thirsty. And he fucking reaches across the table. Just chugs just it. Just chugs <laughs> Polver's beer. And at that moment, you know, and the cool thing too, he's, he's chugging his beer, but he's doing it with his head like cocked to the side. So he maintains eye contact with him like basically the whole time in case Polver tries yeah, to do anything. Yeah, he's giving him the middle finger with yeah. his eyes. <laughs> and, uh, and just keeping an eye on him in case he decides to like attack, right? So oh, e- that's true too. Even like... The brazenness of this move, like taking somebody's beer, you know, at a bar, basically, that's next level. You do that, you're basically saying, fight me, you know? You're, yeah, you're getting in a fight. So Arya, even, it cuts to her eyes, and she's no longer smiling, grinning, like, at the after the fuck the king line. She's like, whoa. Like, her eyes are all wide at this point. Uh, she's yeah, like, she's shit like, is about to go down. <laughs> and he's like, uh, and hungry. Think I'll take two chickens, right? And at this point, Polliver looks back to his comrades, and they're all like wide-eyed and visibly nervous at this point too. And for some reason, Polliver still tries to act tough. He's like, "You don't seem to understand the situation," you know. And he's like, "I understand that if any more words come pouring out of your cunt mouth, I'm gonna have to eat every fucking chicken in this room." Yeah, that's just another great line. Obviously, eating every fucking chicken in this room. He's not actually talking about eating every chicken in this room. He's like, I'm gonna have to kill every one exactly. of you. Exactly. You know, so exactly. it's like a, a beautiful double entendre. Um, it's a, you've lived your life for the king. You're gonna die for some chickens. Someone is. Someone is. <laughs> you know, and that's when Polliver pulls out his sword and the hound. Tips the whole table, like he he raises the raises it a notch. He's like, "Oh, you take your sword. I'm just gonna throw this fucking table at you." So he, he throws the whole table at him, knocks him over. A scuffle ensues. Everybody's going crazy. The hound's just like slashing and beating people to a pulp. He stabs a guy in the crotch with <laughs> with something. And the guy, oh, that was so brutal. So brutal. The guy's like, ah. You know, and uh, this some guy gets on top of the hound and tries to cut his throat. And this is to me is like you know like how little kids will be like playing and like like a bully will like grab your hand and like smack it against your own face and be like stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself while he's like <laughs> yeah. making you hit yourself. That, that sort of happens with this. It's like a grown up version or like a Westeros oh, version <laughs> where yes. where he turns. I have the guys. a hard time watching that. Oh, I love part it. of that scene. It's, it's so, so great. Like oh, you <laughs> so see it coming, cool. you're like no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the blade slowly turns from the hound's neck. 
and you can see the guy watching the blade and his eyes get more and more wild as he realizes that that his strength is very outmanned by Sandor's strength and the blade turns towards his own face and steadies itself and then the hound is who's holding onto his head just slams it down on the blade two or three times uh, and the guy's and the sound effects in that scene too it's just like <laughs> yeah and on top of the sound effects the guy's acting performance as he as he gets as he stabs himself in the face basically the first one's kind of like a low groan ah! and the second one's like ah! <laughs> like like you really like see screeches on the second impact and it's like really really messed up like people were uh traumatized by the Sansa rape scene because of the sounds like you didn't really see her being raped but yeah like you heard her whimpering and crying and I feel like even like this is sort of similar even though you see him being stabbed in the face by the knife his vocal performances like like you you close your eyes so you don't have to watch it and it may even be worse because of his wails it's just like it pathetic is. whimpering because like, I screaming. don't really watch that part very often <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I watched it today for the rewatch, so you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I usually don't, though. I usually like pretend to be doing something else, like check my emails. (laughs) Right, right. I'm like, now's now's a good time to check my my Facebook feed. Scroll (laughs) randomly through anything, so I don't have to watch this. So yeah, that's a classic moment. Stop hitting yourself. Stop stabbing yourself. Stop stabbing yourself. You know. (laughs) (laughs) And then. Oh man, the guy he like rolls the guy off of him and and as the hound is sort of getting up and collecting himself, he uh Polliver starts crawling back over to his sword cuz the hound had like really decked Polliver in the face and like knocked him out pretty pretty hard a minute beforehand. So Arya sees him Polliver starting to crawl like regain consciousness and crawl, crawl back over to his sword and she takes quick action. So it's about time to add a second and third man to Arya's kill list. <laughs> you know? Yes. So she grabs a, a dead guy's sword and oh, sticks it right through this guy who's lying on the ground trying to get up, killing a second guy. And then she whack slices the tendons on the back of Polliver's legs, like severs his ACLs or whatever. He drops instantly onto his knees and like clockwork, she just reaches right around him and whoosh, draws needle from his belt a girl has a sword you know well and i love that she goes for his legs first because it's even more justice for lami because his leg was injured that's why he couldn't walk that's right. why he was asking Polliver for help right so she like whacks him across the legs yep and then yeah her famous line yeah he's on his back and like you're saying her first thing that she says to him is something wrong with your leg boy and yeah his legs are fucked up like she just cut him so that at first that question like sort of makes sense but it's still kind of weird the way she says it it confuses him i don't think he's like understanding like what what the hell yeah of course my leg hurts (laughs) oh yeah at this point he doesn't make the connection yet he just knows that, like, yeah, like, something's wrong with my leg, but why are you calling me boy? You know, like, something's weird about this question. So he's like, what? What do, what do you mean? And, you know, can you can you walk? Have I got to carry you? Carry me? Fine little blade. And he's, like, still doesn't know what's going on. And he's, like, holding up his hands, like, don't don't kill me. Because at this point, it's it's, like, stuck to his neck, right? And she looks him right in the eye. Maybe I'll pick my teeth with it. 
And he's like, oh, oh my God, I, love it. I said that. And right as his eyes widen and he realizes that this is the girl and he thinks it's impossible, that's when she just slides it right it. up through his oh, throat. Oh, and his death took a while, too. It was like, Yeah. Ugh. And if you look closely, you can see Needle pop out the back of his head. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Wild. And then as Arya watches the blood pool from Polliver's mouth and watching him gurgle and everything, it cuts to her and she's smiling. And she is twisted, man. <laughs> like, she is enjoying this. She is pretty twisted. I mean, and it's just another name off her list. It's like, check, yep. on to the next. <laughs> yep. And this is easily one of my favorite scenes of the entire show. Um, and it's so cool how she 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 remembers that moment where he killed Lamy so vividly that she repeats all the lines to him. And, and only right before he dies is does he realize what's happening, basically. Very well done. And then they ride off. Hound's munching on some chicken. Arya is smiling. With- and she has her pony. Oh, she's got her pony. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a horse. She's got needle on her belt. Hound's got his chicken. And everybody's happy. Everyone's happy. <laughs> That's great. And she has the pony, too. I didn't even like realize that. That's so funny. I'm, just, I'm a horse girl, so of course I... Re- true, true, true. And hopefully that tavern wench uh, never got raped. I don't think so, because most of those guys were dead, and her and her dad ran up the stairs. As long as she wasn't raped before they got there, before, um, you know, the Hound and Arya got there, then she was basically saved, so... I don't uh, think she was. I don't think she was, because she was still fully clothed. Yep. And uh, the guy was pleading with them, too, so it's like nothing had really happened yet, so... Thank you, thank you, the Hound, for uh, being a champion of women. Yes, for sure. <laughs> we never see the hound really do anything bad to a woman. No, I mean, he's, he tries to just, I feel like he's the barometer of like the knights and the kind of brotherhood that goes along with that because of the way he feels about his brother. Yeah, so I think sense. he tries to do kind of everything that a knight is really purposed to do. You know, be noble and act with honor and protect people. And, you know, while many knights do that, it's it's almost like a fraternity, you know, like. There's definitely good. There's good and bad things when you're knighted and. He he tries to just uphold the good. Yep. When he can. (laughs) He doesn't have a ruthless king telling him what to do. Tell him to slaughter little boys and shit. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, it's it wasn't up killing... to him. It was out of his hands. Yeah, I so. mean, he can't disobey his king. Right. Otherwise, so... he's a dead man. Yeah. So yeah, when he's not being forced to uh, do other people's evil bidding, he uh, he really does try to be a noble noble person. Pretty badass. So that pretty much wraps Absolutely. up my number four. A girl has her sword finally. And uh, nice. anything else you want to add about that? No, I think we covered that scene pretty pretty well. It's a it's a great scene. Really it's a is. really good one. So how about your number three? So my number three is the Viper. Nice. Same with me. I, I titled it. Awesome. A, a Dornishman pays his debts. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. So we meet Oberyn Martell this episode and. I want to rewind just before we meet Oberyn. 
when Tyrion is kind of boasting about his, you know, amazing diplomatic skills, diplomatic skills, and rock climbing skills, hunting skills, <laughs> diplomatic <laughs> Napoleon <skills>. Dynamite. <laughs> Um, you know, any any scene with Braun and Tyrion, I love their banter while they're waiting outside for what they are assuming is Prince Doran. How many Dornishmen does it take to fuck a goat? <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Just knock it off, Braun. Like we should we should be waiting in a tavern so we can drink while we wait for the party. <laughs> yeah. like, this is the Prince of Dorne we're waiting for, dude. We're not gonna like be in a tavern like drunk off our asses waiting for the prince. Yep. Um, I love Braun, man. He's the fucking best. He's the best. (laughs) I want to party with Braun. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, but I I think it's really funny that Pod. He's such a nerd. He like knows all the Dornish houses and yeah. What a quirky character he is. He's like Gliven. uh. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. Um, but I love when Tyrion gets snubbed and. They find out Prince Duran is not coming, but Oberyn is there in his place, and you can just kind of see the look on Tyrion's face, like, oh, shit. Oberyn is in King's Landing. He arrived before dawn. We need to go find him before he, like, kills somebody. Yeah, and he mentions that there was, you know, been a, a conflict between the Martells of Dorne and the Lannisters of Casterly Rock, which has been, a, you know, this conflict has been around for years. And obviously, this animosity is largely a result of the mountain having killed Oberyn's sister, Elia, the princess and wife of the Targaryen prince Rhaegar, son of the Mad King, and her children, young Aegon and uh, Rhaenys, I believe. Yes. Ah, oh, it's so brutal. Yeah, so of course we meet Oberyn in a whorehouse with his paramour. Yep. And that shows how smart Tyrion is again, because he just like immediately knows where to look for him. He's like, well, if I were arriving in the city and like blah, 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 I'd be looking for a whore, basically. <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> if you're known absolutely. as being a killer and a, like a, a whore monger, basically, like that's what you're going to be doing. Right. So I, I love when he you know, is um, talking to Alaria about, like, the horrors that they're going to pick out. And he goes to the guy. He's like, and you're staying. He goes, you know, I'm not an offer. And he goes, everyone who works for Littlefinger is an offer. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm wildly expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever been with a prince? (laughs) (laughs) It's also cool, that scene, because um, you immediately get to see the dynamic between... um, Oberyn and Ilaria and how it differs between the way like that women are treated in other parts of Westeros. Obviously, they're basically on equal footing here. Ilaria is making decisions. He, she's asking her for input on what they should do. She takes part in the same type of promiscuity that he does. They're uh, they're like equals in their relationship, which is kind of interesting to note strong female character um, who's recognized as such by her partner. Um, It's not something that's super common around Westeros. You know, women don't necessarily always get to make decisions. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, she's definitely um, an equal and respected, I would say, is the best word. Yeah. You can tell that he really loves her, that they have 
you know, and I love her when that Oliver, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Oliver, yeah. Oliver, yeah, Oliver, Oliver. <laughs> um, you know, she goes, he, you know, he goes, my lady, and she's like, let's just keep it real here. I'm a bastard. <laughs> she's a whore. <laughs> like, let's just call it how it is. I just kind yeah. of loved that. A term of courtesy in this establishment, lady. A lie anywhere. Yeah. It's like, dude, you're in a whorehouse. <laughs> you're in a whorehouse. Yeah. It reminded me of that time with Stannis when they're, he's writing the letter about Joffrey being a bastard and after the death of Robert and the, the person who's actually the scribe is like reading off what he has and he's like, his beloved brother, Robert. And he's like, I had no love towards Robert, you know, and he's like, well, it, it's just a harmless courtesy, you know, a, a lie, lie take, take it, it out. out. So same thing here, a term of courtesy in this establishment, a lie anywhere. you know. <laughs> it's so true. So I, you know, then, you know, they're about ready to get it on. And then he hears the ominous reigns of Castamere. And my favorite part <laughs> is that when they when Oberyn gets up and um, Alaria is like, Oberyn, don't. And she gets up to follow him and the whores are looking at each other like, like what the what hell is, is going on? Yeah, and obviously <laughs> these two Lannister guys are singing the song because the Dornishman is here or something. Yes. Like, like they're seem to be trying to agitate know. him. Well, I they know who he think- is because they're like, I, we don't see any Dornishmen here in the capital. Like, but I think they, I think they realize he's from Dorne when they see him. Not, I don't think they're aware. True, because they wouldn't necessarily there. have any reason to instigate anything against him. So yeah, maybe you're right. No, because nobody knows that Oberyn is there. It's supposed to be Doran, and I'm not sure Doran would go to Littlefinger's whorehouse. He doesn't strike me as that person. Right. I was just thinking that. I thought that maybe word of Oberyn's arrival had spread throughout the whorehouse, so those guys may have heard oh, it. Oh, maybe. Like, you know. I don't know, though. They were pretty... I think they were just serenading their whores. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because they're Lannisters, so they want to look badass by singing the reigns of Castamere. Like, they're not Lannisters themselves, but they're, themselves, like, low-level... They, they're henchmen. Like, <laughs> yes. So they're like, they're we're, in, we're in with the big guys, you know? We're going to sing this song to show you that we're, pa- we're part of the power structure. So, yeah, yes. maybe... Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> So, and then, you know, the whole scene where they are just kind of bantering back and forth and, oh, God, when Oberyn stabs him in the wrist and he goes, a long sword is bad as a bad option in closed quarters. Yep. Oh, so great. And the look on his face, too, is just like this maniacal look and his face is just like perfect for this moment. He's very calm and poised and talking with like... You know, there's there's a lot of veins in the wrist, and you know he's just sitting there looking yeah. at him like you're an idiot. <laughs> you can tell he's having a lot of fun, and he looks super dangerous. Yes, um, which is on display also. And he's when he first enters the room, he walks in and like sort of slowly puts his hand over a flame, and it's like a hint you're playing with fire here. <laughs> right? Oh, that's so true. Also showing that he like doesn't give a fuck that. <laughs> That's very true. I didn't even catch that. I mean, I know he puts his hand over the candle, but that's a great, you know, kind of subtle, subtle hint. And then, of course, in walks Tyrion right as he pulls the 
<laughs> the blade out. Spurt, spurt. Blood shooting everywhere. And Tyrion's like, <gasps> kind of like, <laughs> what is happening here? What is happening? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think it's great because there's a lot of parallels between Oberyn and Tyrion. I mean, they're both the second sons. Yeah. They're, they're both... Um, you know, not in succession for the throne. And I I love their dialogue outside the brothel because Oberyn mentions that Rhaegar left his sister for another woman that started a war. Right. And I, I mean, that's a huge foreshadow that obviously Rhaegar um, left his sister for Lyanna Stark. Yep. And it started a war. So clearly, maybe Prince Oberyn knows more than most of the other houses about that situation. Maybe. Because. I, I mean, thought- it, was, it was known that he had at least captured Lyanna and people had thought that it, she was kidnapped. But Ray, um, Oberyn seems to think that she that he. Uh, Rhaegar had left, left her. Yeah. Yes. Elia for yes. for Lyanna. So he seems yeah. to have a more romantic interpretation of the situation as opposed to all of us who are told repeatedly that Lyanna was kidnapped and raped by Rhaegar. Yes. Yeah, so I think he obviously knows a little more than the rest of Westeros. And I do love that he mentions that. Tywin was the one that kind of ended the war back here at King's Landing because it goes back to just this previous episode when Joffrey's like trying to go toe to toe with Tywin and says that he's been hiding under Castle Rock and my father won the real war and right. killed Prince Rhaegar. It was actually Tywin that ended the war. <laughs> True. I mean, Robert might have killed Rhaegar. But Tywin was the one that put the war to to end. So I thought that was kind of a nice coup after Joffrey's, you know, 16-year-old tantrum that he was having. He's like, actually, um, little boy, I sacked King's Landing. You know, Robert won a battle at the Trident, but I took the throne, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then his, his line, you know, the Lannisters aren't the only ones who pay their debts. Yeah, not even pretending like that's an open threat, you know. He's like, yeah. tell like, your I'm father here. I'm here. Yeah, yeah I'm here. <laughs> There's some other funny moments uh, to cover from this scene as well. Like um, he tells Olivar, take off your clothes. You know, we'll be here for a while. And um, Olivar's like, which way do you like it? And he's like, my way. So <laughs> I think it's safe to say that Oberyn is the dom in this situation. Oh, for sure. Which is hilarious. Um, well, that Oliver guy is definitely not the dom <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. anything. He's the sub for sure. So uh, they, when he walks into the Lannisters singing, you know, one of them's like, "You lost friend," and uh, that sort of signifies that they don't know who he is as well. I don't see many Lannisters where I'm from. We don't see any many Dornishmen in the capital. And he's like, we don't like the smell <laughs> of the capital, which is hilarious because King's Landing is known for its wretched smell, which can apparently be experienced even from a distance. And uh, that reminds me of the Great Stink of 1858. Have you ever heard of that before? No. So the Great Stink of 1858 occurred in England. And basically, 
up until that point, there was no such thing as sewers or like drainage systems for, for waste. So people would just be dumping out their, um, their, their night pails, um, like in flea bottom, you know, and the shit would be running past (laughs) whatever street it was. So apparently one summer was like pretty hot in England and, the whole country just like stunk to the point where it was known as the great stink of 1858. And it resulted in the creation of sewer systems. <laughs> like they were like, we have to deal with this. Well, isn't that a good thing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we have to deal with this once and for all. Thank God for that. Yeah. So that's pretty funny. And it always like, I always end up thinking about it somehow. The great stink of 1858. Look it up. So Ilaria comes in to try to, to, talk down Oberyn and they're like, why are you wasting a woman like this on a Dornishman? Bring him a shaved goat and a bottle of (laughs) olive oil. And I'm like, oh, you just fucked up so bad. Some great dialogue here. You know why all the world hates a Lannister? You You think your gold and your lions and your golden lions make you better than everyone. But can I tell you a secret? You're not a golden lion. You're just a pink little man who's far too slow on the draw. And it takes a second for that to sink in for the other guy. That's, that's, he, he just slapped him with the glove across the face. You know what I mean? That's oh, saying, for sure. That's saying, draw your sword, punk. Like, it's time to go. And it totally echoes, um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? The guy that chops off Jamie's hand. Oh, um, uh, Vargo Hote, or in, in the show, sorry, um, Lock, lock, lock. Lock. Oh my God. Why did we, we were both like, yeah, what the I, heck? It kind of reminds me of when Locke, what Locke says to Jamie about like, you guy, you think you can hide behind your father. You know, it's, it's a very similar sentiment. So clearly this feeling about the Lannisters spreads yeah. from the north down to the south. Oh yeah, people people don't like the Lannisters generally speaking, no. which is you know Jamie's widely renowned as like a scumbag. Nobody likes Cersei, who's ever met her, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, so he tells the guy basically, "Draw your sword, bitch," and it takes the guy a second. But as soon as he reaches for his sword on the table, Oberyn just whack pins his wrist to the table. <sighs> so he basically uh, his. Oberyn is known for his speed in combat and his like legendary fighting capability. So this is a moment where we get to see his legendary speed on full display as he taunts this guy and then pins the guy's wrist to the table lightning fast with his dagger. He actually lets the guy make the first move and reach for his sword and then he grabs his dagger and jams it into his wrist so fast that the guy can't even react. Totally. It's amazing. And so the other guy sort of reaches for his own sword and his scabbard and, ah, longsword is a bad option in close quarters. When I pull my blade, your friend starts bleeding. Quite a lot, I'm afraid. So many veins in the wrist. (laughs) That's when he gets that look on his face and he basically, you know, gives him an option. He says, he'll live if you get him help straight away. So, decisions. (laughs) That's a another great line there. Decisions. I'm laughing my ass off. And that's when uh, Tyrion walks in and he pulls the blade and and the guy is like, he sort of grabs his friend and runs out. 
And for all we know, that guy died because a lot of like, you know, cutting the wrist like that is known as a method. Yeah, he's likely to have died. Yeah, I mean to survive that with an artery. If he nicked the artery, which it looks like he went straight through the wrist, so I'm assuming he did. Yeah, and the yeah, way yeah. it squirted out, squirted I mean, out. That was a lot of blood. Yeah. Ugh. A- so Tyrion meets Oberyn and. Um, you can sit right off the bat. It doesn't seem like like Oberyn hates Tyrion as much as the other Lannisters, and we get to learn about why he has a soft spot for Tyrion in the future. Remember when he talks about visiting Casterly Rock and hearing about this ugly, twisted monster, and when he's just a little baby, and Cersei's like pinching his cock and making him cry and stuff. Wait, is that's not this episode though? Is no, it? that's just that, in, just oh, in, the, okay. in the future. I was like, did I miss that? <laughs> but but um, it's like a pre-reflection of that story as he seems like more warm totally. towards Tyrion. He invites Tyrion and the Hound to join them in an orgy, basically, and says, "We'll need more girls in here." <laughs> you know, Bron. Yeah, Bron seems like totally cool with that. Um, yeah, Bron's shaking his head like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah." <laughs> yeah. And uh, Bron has a couple other great lines here. He's like, um, he's like, uh, what does he say to him? And what are you, his hired killer? Started that way, aye. Now I'm a knight. How did that come to pass? Killed the right people, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) So he's got a great few lines here. The killing the right people line, the how many Dornishmen does it take to fuck a goat line. And then then there's, yeah, his line about Tyrion's diplomacy. That was some some high high quality diplomacy there, Tyrion, (laughs) after they just sort of brush past him, almost running him over with a horse. As he's still talking. Yeah, he's trailing off. You must be weary from all your travels. (laughs) (laughs) Must be weary from all your travels. (laughs) As they slam past him. So that's great. Yeah, I picked up on that reference too about how. Oberyn refers to them both as being second sons. Um, yeah, which is funny because we just what was the second son? The, no, yeah, second two sons episodes was ago. last two episodes ago. That's yeah, right. Yeah, we got the introduction of the Sellsword Group, second sons, and you know, there's lots of second sons in this episode as well. Tyrion, Oberyn, the Hound, John. Oh, that's very kind true. Of. Yeah. Kind of, that not really. Um, I guess John would be Rhaegar's second son, right? And he's, I mean, if we were to think of him as Ned's too. Yeah, then like, he'd like be the, second it, to he Rob. Is, he's second to Rob. <laughs> so it's like kind of. <laughs> mm, kind of, but kind yeah, of I mean, Ned's he is second Rhaegar's son. second son for sure. Yeah. Um, so Oberyn goes over the whole story about... His sister being, you know, murdered by Gregor Clegane and how he raped her and split her in half with his great sword and how the kid, the babies were killed. And the whole time where he started talking about that, Tyrion is just like his eyes are just fixed on the ground and he's visibly uncomfortable by this conversation. And you can tell he feels ashamed um, by it and sympathizes with Oberyn to some extent. And uh, Oberyn feels comfortable enough with him to reach down and touch his chin and lift his, his face up to uh, to make eye contact with again with him again. And I'm asking you a question, <laughs> uh, which is And pretty... I like how Tyrion kind of like bats his hand away. Like, right, don't, yeah. don't do that because it reminded me of like what a, an adult does to a child. Right, and he's... Like yeah. when you want them to look at you and 
you know, with the with the height difference, I think maybe Tyrion had just gotten that a lot in yeah, his life, and sucks. it was like a disrespect to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Um, so he goes on to say, um, "If the mountain killed my sister, your father gave the order. Tell your father I'm here." And tell him the Lannisters <laughs> aren't the only ones who pay their debts. <laughs> like you said. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Open threat. Not even trying to hide it. Like, I'm here for Tywin. Biatch. Basically. Yep. Um, and a well-deserved threat. You know, Ty- Ty- Tywin fucked up, basically, when that whole thing happened. Um, he knew that Oberyn was who he was. And it, he was playing with fire, fucking with Oberyn's family, basically. I actually, I'm not sure if he ordered um, the mountain to actually kill Elia Martell. He may, that mountain may have actually just done that on his own. I would have a hard, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure like what purpose that served to kill. I mean, sadly, I know. It would be leaving a regent, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Queen regent. I mean, I know Tywin is pretty cold-blooded, but I have a hard time believing that he would order that. However, though, I mean... He did wipe out the whole houses of Rain, of, uh, rain and Tarbeck. <laughs> yeah, and also uh, the Hound is, you know, what we've come to find, um, <clears throat> what Rob says is a mad dog. He follows orders, so... Right. At, I mean, I know he goes off on crazy stuff. You mean uh, not the hound, the mountain? Oh, the mountain. Yeah, the mountain is a mad dog. And he goes off and does his own crazy things, but he's obeying Tywin's orders. Yep. I also uh, I like how, um, how Oberyn turns around that famous Lannister saying on Tyrion, you know, a Lannister always pays his debts. He like, <laughs> you know, Tyrion said that repeatedly. We've heard so many Lannisters say that and he, he sort of spins it on Tyrion here <laughs> and so, tells him <laughs> that uh, Lannisters the aren't only the only ones. ones. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty classic moment there. I mean, that, that pretty yeah. much uh, wraps up everything I wanted to say about the, the introduction of the Red Viper. Anything else you want to add? Um, No, I think that's... That's it. Nice. How about your numero dos? So my nu- numero dos was what the fuck salami. Oh, right, right, right. We we covered that scene pretty pretty detailed. Yep, for sure. So my number two is dragons. And um, dragons. Yeah. Nice. Danny lounges with Drogon as Rhaegal and Viserion fly and fight over a dead goat. And the dragons are much bigger at this point, like we mentioned earlier, and more difficult to control as well, as seen by how Drogon lashes out at Danny when she uh, tries to pull him oh, back from time. fighting for the goat. She's like, hey, come on back here. And he, like, <laughs> yeah, she's like, shh, 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 and he's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, my Lord. Right in her <laughs> face. And he is menacing looking. Like, um, she's visibly unnerved and shaken by this and she sort of like stays reclined back even further with like her eyes frozen wide and (laughs) sort of looks away like uh, like gazing the landscape and (laughs) drogon flaps his wings and her hair like flows for a moment with the gust of wind from his wings really well done because obviously the dragon isn't there so they just had to 
time a gust of wind and then add the CGI for the dragon flapping his wings and make them line up. The CGI is just so amazing. Really, Uh, really good here. I mean, like he's when she's just sitting there quietly petting him and he's I I almost kind of call it like purring like a cat. Yeah, because like his little I don't even know what to call like his scales, like the ribs on the back of his they like kind of flutter as he's breathing and the sounds that he's making. It's so good. It's it. They truly look like real animals. It's pretty uncanny. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Agreed. So then uh, as Drogon flaps off and flies away, and Drogon, yeah, his coloring is the black and red. He just looks so cool, too. Um, Jorah approaches. They're dangerous, Khaleesi. They can never be tamed, not even by their mother. And that's sort of maybe foreshadowing potential danger to Danny from her dragons in the future. Oh. You know, who ooh. knows? Like, uh, who knows, man? They could... If, uh, if like, obviously, Viserion is going to be a problem. That's uh, true. So, yeah, the dragons can turn on anybody. It sort of made me think of um, when they were arranging for the quote-unquote purchase of, of, this, of the Unsullied from Krasny's Monastus, and she hands over the dragon on the chain and... He's like trying to control it, and he's like, "She's like, oh, um, yeah, sorry, I, like I agreed to give him to you, but yeah, he never really agreed to that, you know." And dragons aren't a dragon a is slave. not a slave, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> melting eyeballs and everything. Dracarys, yeah. So, uh, um, this kind of made me a little bit worried um, for for Danny. Like, who knows? Something could go wrong, and you know, dragon might bite the hand that that feeds it. Now, there may be more to that in the books. I don't want to give any spoilers away, or non-spoilers. Maybe nothing happens. You'll just have to read to uh, find out. Read the books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely read them. So then Danny, she's she's like, Where are the, where's Dario? And where's Grey Worm? And he's like, gambling, your grace. <laughs> so she walks through her army of unsullied, past her newly freed people who are still Misa-ing as she walks past. And she comes upon a couple people sitting on the floor holding out some blades. And it's uh, an introduction of a new old character, Dario 2.0, this time played by Michael Huisman, who is also from Orphan Black, which is a great show if you guys haven't seen it. It's about this girl who realizes that she is one of many clones, and she plays like 12 different characters, all with different hairstyles, different accents different mannerisms and gates and speech patterns and tatiana maslani she's an incredible actress so i remember when i first saw this episode i was super jealous that that he was here because he gets this this actor michael huisman i'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his last name but he gets to be to act as a love interest for two of my favorite my two favorite women on television during this year. <laughs> That's so funny. Tatiana Maslany and Amelia Clark, the bastard. <laughs> so I'm just wishing I'm that guy for a minute there. And uh, so they're both holding out these blades in this contest of valor and strength, which is kind of funny, trying to win 
who uh, the honor of riding by Danny's side on the road to Marine. <laughs> and she's like, and I love ah. how she just kind of like scolds him. She's yeah. like, so stupid. Yeah. She's <laughs> like, just because you guys are being idiots, I'm going to give that honor to Sir Jorah. And the last person holding their sword um, can go find a new queen to fight for. And they both drop him. Like simultaneously too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Dario's like, must be frustrating. Grey Worm responds, you're, you're not a smart man, Dario Naharis. And he replies, I'd rather have no brains and two balls. And kind of like points towards Grey Wind's um, crotch with his Eric. And I'm like, damn, that's a low blow, Dario. That's a low blow. Totally. You didn't need to say that. <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous. People say shit like that too varies as well. You know, Tyrion's like talking about how he's cockless and whatnot. And the uh, the other dragon moment that I liked is not literally the dragons, but Danny herself as she um, walks further along and sees that there are these children on crosses um, at every mile for um, one hundred and sixty three hundred and sixty three miles. Oh man, that's so brutal, um, and. She decides, you know, somebody says, I think it's Barristan says, uh, I'll tell our men to ride ahead and bury them. You don't need to see this. And she says, you will do no such thing. I will see each and every one of their faces. And I like how Danny wants to see the truth regardless, regardless of its hideousness. And she wants to see each of the victims and feel their pain and connect with these people, these poor slaves to uh they're like little girls too i mean it's not just slaves they're like children yes it's It's horrible horrible. yeah exactly so and she goes remove her collar before you bury her yep oh so horrible yeah so i like her like how she's willing to see the truth no matter what and wants to to feel the pain to keep her motivated and on task, and uh, it's just pretty, pretty cool. So that pretty much wraps up my number two. How about your okay. number one, my lady? My number one was, was ice. Ice, right? Yeah. So we kind of pretty much covered ice in great detail. And mine was the golden hands of gold, always cold. I love that the bookends of this episode start with a Stark sword and end with a Stark sword. I think that's pretty much... Oh, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like... It's the the melting down of one era, like, of Ned. And it's the beginning of Arya being kind of that... I don't know. Just revenge I and guess. it's sort of like that thing where like when one door closes another door opens we lose yes. one sword but we found another sword that was lost you know type and thing. i truly yeah i truly believe that the two swords this episode is referring to is ice and needle even Ooh. though we do see ice turned Oath into two he- swords yeah yeah i think it's I think That's it's really, really interesting. referring to ice and needle. That's cool. I like that interpretation. We'll go with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure. I'm sure other people out there are like, well, I mean, 
the the I think it's the literal the if you're going to look at it from a literal perspective, the two swords are oath keeper and uh widow's wail because that's what ice is turning into. But the more poetic way to look at it would be ice and needle. Yeah, and it's like the bookends. I mean, literally like the first scene that we see the cold open is ice and the last scene we see is Arya getting needle back. The last shot is Arya riding away with needle. So it's like this whole episode is is sandwiched in between these two swords, ice yeah, and needle. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. So that was my number one. <laughs> Great. So I'm sure we have a lot of notes to cover as well. We do. We nice. do. I still have some notes. You want to start off? Sure. Um, so I really enjoyed, even though it's a really sad scene for Sansa, I really enjoyed that Tyrion seems to truly be concerned about her welfare. Yeah, he holds her hand. He's, he tells her, I swore to protect you, you know? I yeah, can't let you starve. I, I truly feel that it's a genuine and honest concern that he has. I don't think he was very pleased with his father for killing off his wife's family. I agree. For, I mean, for many reasons. The, the guest right, the, you know, it's like... I'm not going to rape her, and now you've killed her family, so I think now you've he kind also, of left me no choice. <laughs> yeah, and I think he also just had sort of a respect for a number of Starks. Like, he yeah. tells, uh, <laughs> he hilariously tells uh, Sansa in this scene, like, yeah, you know, I, I admired your mother. She wanted to have me executed, but I admired <laughs> I <know>. her. <laughs> she was I a know. strong woman, and she was fierce when it came to protecting her children. And I loved when he said, your mother would want you to carry on. You know she would want you to. I mean, that's like a great sentiment. And I found it, this is kind of the first, I know Shay has been kind of sort of jealous throughout this, you know, whole marriage to Sansa, but she's starting to become more defiant with her stance for example when he said if i could have a moment with my wife the other two handmaidens just like scurry off and she just stands there and stares at him yeah like what's he's like what are you doing like blowing your cover you need to leave yeah you need to get out of here and then as Tyrion starts talking to sansa she looks back at him and just gives him like this evil look specifically I i think because she sees he's holding her hand Yes, and it's also happened after the whole Varys giving her the diamonds, and right, so she, right. she in her he's mind, to get rid of her. Get rid of her, yeah. So that's you know kind of the start of Shay Shay's betrayal to Tyrion. I think she's yeah. always had kind of a jealous streak, but this is kind of the moment yeah, where it's propelling. It's and- interesting, too. Her betrayal may largely stem from thinking that Tyrion is trying to get rid of her with these diamonds when Tyrion really had nothing to do with it. He had so no this, idea. this false seed has been planted, essentially, by Varys, which she, like, misinterpreted. There wasn't really anything to suggest that it was Tyrion's idea. Varys had said to her, like, you're a bad influence on Tyrion, um, or your your presence is a danger. Like we need to get you out of here. But he never really implied that it was Tyrion telling him to do this. No, so not she at sort all. Of, yeah, she sort of projected her own thoughts onto this and assumed that it was Tyrion when it was really Varys trying to manipulate it in the background, basically. 
And she confronts Tyrion about this. And Tyrion is like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. He's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I truly believe that he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about or what she's talking about. And Yeah, same here. You know, I, I just feel, I really feel for Sansa in this overall scene because she's clearly not wanting to eat she has people telling her like you need to eat you need to eat she won't even eat and lemon then, cakes she loves lemon i know cakes. i know <laughs> i wanted a lemon cake it looks yeah so me good. too <laughs> um but you know they they sewed my brother's dire wolf onto his body and they threw my mother's body in the river after cutting her throat to the bone oh god this <laughs> is horrible but you know and then this this scene the last bullet point I kind of have is when um, she's pretty much just had enough of people like, trying to get <laughs> yeah, her to eat. Sansa. And she's just like, fucking leave me alone. I just like want to grieve my family. Yeah. I just. Will you pardon me, my lord? I'd like to yeah. visit God's wood. Oh, yes. You know, prayer can be helpful during a time like this. She goes, I don't pray anymore. It's the only place I can go where people don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> and Tyrion's just like, fuck, like I'm trying so hard here. I know, he really was. Just keep shutting me down. It shows his character <laughs> so much, though, how much he cares about her well-being and her welfare. He's got a little body, but a big heart. Yeah, and, you know, back to the the scene where Shay and Tyrion are going, it's like, you know, you have your child bride. He's like, she despises me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love her. <laughs> she's like, uh, she's like, don't you want me? And he's like, things are a bit tense right now. And she's like, what Just things? He's like, are you like, are you fucking kidding me? My nephew, the king, wants to murder me. My wife hates me because my father murdered her family. Oberyn Martell wants to murder everyone whose name is Lannister. And he just showed up today. It's <laughs> so, like, she's completely oblivious to reality. Right. And then, like, immediately following that, she's like, you need to relax. And he's like, don't you want, don't you you want to relax? To re- <laughs> and he's like, she's like, what's wrong? And he's like, what the, I fucking told you. <laughs> you know? I know, she's so dense. <laughs> so dense. Like, she's not even listening to him. She's just, like, so fixated on being potentially, like, betrayed by Tyrion and told to be, you know, moved off in a way that she's not even listening to what he's saying. No, or or being rational about it. She may be listening, but she's not hearing it. Right, and that, that lack of rationality um, results in her, like, screaming about all this, basically, and which is not good because Cersei's go-to girl, her handmaiden-slash-spy, is listening in. As, yes. as Shay storms off, we see her, like, din, 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 like, spy versus spy on the back of that pillar there. And she goes scurrying off. Yeah, and this is that same handmaiden that plays more of a role in the future. She's always sort of mimicking Cersei's hairstyle, and she's consistently been Cersei's handmaiden throughout all uh, all these seasons. We, we get to see her a bunch more. Yeah, she's been around for a while. Yeah, for sure. And she's, she's around... She is the one that opens the door when... In season seven, when her and Jamie are in bed together, she's yes. like, hey, we'll need fresh sheets. It's the same girl. Yeah. Just with a different uh, hairstyle. Like you said, it's short. Yeah. Yeah. She's always mimicking Cersei's. It's funny. Just trying to emulate her. And yeah, she obviously trusts her because she doesn't even care that she walks in when she's in bed with her brother, you know? Yeah. That's pretty crazy. 
What else you got for notes? So I have Egret in my notes. We find out she's, you know, in this episode, <laughs> a prodigy with a bow. <laughs> Sorry. I can't say it without it. an end. That's funny. Um, so last episode when, was it last episode when she's shooting John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, him. as a, as a first-time viewer, don't really know that she's a prodigy with a bow. True. Um, it's this episode that we find out from Torment that... I've seen you slip a shaft through a rabbit's eye at 200 yards. If you, yeah, if, if that boy is still walking, it's because you let him go. Exactly. <laughs> and her face is kind of like... Yeah, busted. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Um, and in this in this scene, we we meet the Thens, and yep. I love the guy that plays the main Then. Oh yeah, he's he intense. He is is super intense. He's big I, too. He's big. He the scarring on their faces. I mean, you can just tell that. I mean, the wildlings in general are a rough group of people, and these people are like the Vikings of the Vikings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That scar art, man, is really intense. Like, that's not... You can tell these people are different. Yeah, and they're cannibals. I mean, he's talking about, you know, they just raided... They came from the south. They found some good meat down there. Maybe everything is just better fed down here. Fat and lazy. I think he was talking about um, the village where Ollie comes from. Yeah, I think so too. Because they raided that village. So. Or maybe, did they do that already? I think yes. they raid that together oh. once, uh, now that they're joined up. Oh, you're right. You're, you're so right. Because Tormund is in that as well. And Egret is there too. <laughs> I can't say her name. It's <laughs> Only a reason, like, I, I wouldn't have corrected you, but I just know that people listening would, like, get mad at us for it. No, that's fine. I'm glad you did, because I, I originally, when I first watched the show, I thought it was Ingrid. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. it's Egret uh, it's or Egret, depending on who's saying it. But I think Ingrit. it's like, you know how like sometimes they'll um, they'll have like a name like Peter and they'll spell it weird, P-E-T-Y-R. Mm-hmm. Like they took the name of the bird Egret and just like changed the spelling and made it instead of E-G-R-E-T-Y-G-R-I-T-T-E. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I'm glad you corrected me because I don't want to sound like an idiot. <laughs> oh, good. I just don't want, don't want to be like insulted about it. You know? Oh, God, no, no. I, it takes a lot to insult me. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's so, good for a change. Um, you know, we, we see that the Fens are you know in fact cannibals and they're a very intense group of people and i love tormund when he goes i fucking hate sense <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> just one of the best lines in the show fucking hate sense tormund is you know like we get three guys who are like epic in this one certain way which is the hound and Bronn and tormund they all have a mouth that says hilarious shit and they all are really good at fighting and are rugged and those are like there's like the trifecta of those three, which are just awesome. Totally. <laughs> What's what are some notes that you have? Uh, let's see. Oh, on the we in the same scene, 
Egret is is doing her thing, and the Fen the Fen the Then shows up and asks, "Is she yours to to uh, tor- torment and?" And you know, basically, Ygritte is nobody's property. Nobody tells Ygritte what to do at all. And she stands up, I'm not anybody's, and puts cocks back her bow and puts it right to the guy's neck. And he kind of leans into it. Yeah. He's like, what are you going to do? She's just so badass. And I know Johnny Stitches. Johnny Stitches loves Ygritte. So I know he's like, yeah, Ygritte. Like, he loves this moment, I'm sure. <laughs> and then it, it, the uh, the Then kind of, like, plays it off. Like, he tries to pretend he's not bothered by the bow. You know, and he's like, too scrawny. You know? <laughs> like, not like those she is crows at Castle Black. Yeah, she is. Um. Think of them stuck in their larders, stuffing their faces with ham and blood, sausage and stew, getting nice and fat and marbled. It is just so creepy how he keeps alluding to how they're cannibals by referring to humans in, like, food terms. Yeah, Yeah, marbled or fat and lazy. Like, you don't know he's talking about humans at that point, but it becomes abundantly clear when he says marbled. And then, uh... Yeah, like you mentioned before, I know we've had our differences, Tormund, but just one time before you die, you really ought to try Crow. Crow. Yeah, you see the the (laughs) arm on the cooking spit. Oh, it's so gross. (laughs) Long pig. Yeah, that's a cannibal name for human is long pig. Apparently it tastes kind of similar. Oh, really? Yeah, it tastes similar to pig. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty messed up. That's so oh, gross. super gross. I have Marjorie and the Queen of Thorns. Nice. Yeah, that was a fun scene. I love when Brienne comes in and the Queen of Thorns My just word. goes, Aren't you just marvelous? Singular. <laughs> Absolutely singular. <laughs> yeah, it's cool because Brienne never gets any respect. You know, everybody, she's like Rodney Dangerfield. She gets no respect. You know, everybody's always making fun of her size or saying she's hideous looking or making bets to see who can take her maiden head. They're just poking at her, yeah. Jamie's talking shit the whole time they're on their journey, at least before Harrenhal and, you know, all this chaos. So it's finally, it's good to see her finally get some respect. And the Lady Olena, like, talking about how she's just magnificent and there's, like, a flicker of a smile on Brienne's face when, <laughs> during that scene, you know, where you can see how she's happy that someone is is seeing her for who she is. And, of course, it's Queen Olena that, that looks looks up to Brienne because Queen Olena is all about having women be the strength of the family and, like, suppressing the men who are – men are idiots and everything, and in her family they, they are kind of idiots – but yes. of course, she's going to idolize this this giant woman who's just like a picture of strength and glory and and supremacy. You know what I mean? It's Completely. Just, yeah. So it makes sense that it's Elena to who who has this reaction, and it's just good to see Brienne. You know, get props for once. <laughs> you you smashed. I heard you smashed my grandson to the dirt. <laughs> like. <laughs> like the little boy that he is, right? It's so funny. Yes. Which is so, um, you know, a coup to what Catelyn said when she was at Renly's camp. And she said to Loras, you know, like, my son is actually fighting a war, not just playing at one. Right, like a little boy. Like yeah. a little boy. 
Good call. Good call. A couple minutes before this too, or a minute before, um, it's unreal how they're looking at all this crazy valuable jewelry and Elena just like, she's like, oh, your grandfather gave me a necklace just like this one for my 51st name day and whoop, just throws it over the fucking ledge. Oh, I know. I know. All those handmaidens are probably like, <laughs> yeah. like who you know they all scurry off to go get jewelry because uh, whoever gets the best one gets to keep the second best one one of them had to have come back later to try to find that piece that got thrown off that ledge right? oh i would have been down there digging too oh yeah like where did that go <laughs> yeah totally so funny I love Marjorie's comment about yep. Joffrey would just want me to wear a string of sparrow heads around my neck. <laughs> <laughs> you watch that, even here, even with me. You know, and Marjorie was careless there. It's true. There's spiders in the garden. Yeah, there are. Good, good line. So good thing she has Olena. And uh, so, yeah, it's good we see Olena is like tutoring Marjorie and obviously most of her skills come from Elena all kinds of skills if you know what I mean skills she has <laughs> skills <laughs> she's got jewelry skills she's got secrecy skills seduction skills <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and can I just comment on Joffrey's statue when they're walking Please. through the gardens <laughs> oh my word I didn't even notice the statue so oh are you serious when yeah when Marjorie and Brienne are walking through the gardens, just talking and kind of reconnecting, as they walk away, their bodies are blocking the statue. So as they walk away, there's the statue of Joffrey. Of Joffrey. Standing <laughs> over, of Joffrey standing over a dead wolf with a oh, crossbow. Shit. And then the the way he's standing... In the statue, the very next scene that cuts over is Joffrey standing in that exact position. <laughs> That's <laughs> this great. This is horrible. I'm gonna have to go back and take a look at that because yeah, I, it's pretty. I, I it's pretty really great cinematography. I could. I think I know which pose you're talking about. Yeah, he's looking he's off a to the side of his hands on his hips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. That's so funny. Yeah. So then, um, Brienne and it takes a walk with Marjorie, basically, and. She asked her to come with her, and when Olena says, "You dare not refuse," you know, I know. <laughs> like otherwise she will smite you. Great She'll line. Freaking hammer you into the ground. Yeah, like one of those giants we were talking about earlier. <laughs> Seriously. Um, speaking of giants and giants' blood, it's George R. R. Martin has has confirmed that Brienne is a descendant of Sir Duncan the Tall, who is known for being like giant in stature as well. So. Makes oh, interesting. Makes sense. And you know, yeah. Sir Duncan the Tall was mentioned in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in a little bit. Just wait. There's a lot of cool stuff in the books, especially with Brienne, like little hints to her lineage. Um, pay attention when she when you get to the part where, part where she has to repaint a shield. You'll, uh, you might catch it. If not, ask me when you get there. Or maybe you heard me talk about it on Still Smug or something. I've so, heard you talk about it on Still Smug. Nice. So uh, she's walking along with Marjorie, and Marjorie's like, a shadow? A shadow with the face of Stannis Baratheon. I swear to you, by all the gods, it was Stannis. He plunged his sword through Renly's heart and disappeared. And Marjorie, like, 
seems less shocked than most people would probably be by the revelation of the existence of shadow demons forged by blood magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like she, true. she sort of takes it in stride. She didn't really look at her as crazy. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So one day, my lady, I will avenge our king. You know, and Marjorie corrects her. Joffrey is our king now. You know, oh, I meant no offense. And you've given none. Because they both obviously like Renly better. They both, of course, you know, and um, Marjorie is just essentially warning her to watch out. People may be listening, sort of like Elena did with with her a minute beforehand. So Marjorie's a quick learner, as we know. Yes. Helping out Brienne, too. And that's just a funny little scene. I'm really surprised at how how like Marjorie was not shocked by the shadow demon revelation. <laughs> like what? I'd be like, Brienne, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> what? She's either so immaculately groomed to not bring up or, you know, entertain conversation like that, or it may, you know, or she just like, is not, I think high garden. They're a little emotion. bit more free and open. So it, it may not just be so taboo to talk about that in High Garden. Maybe. I don't know. It's it, it's a it's a good pickup. I'd be curious to know why she isn't like dismissive of it. Well, that There's makes a few two ways of it us. could go. Yeah, but, but it takes more than two to tango, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Madison. Um, yes. <laughs> so. Um, there's a funny moment. Jamie and Sir Marin are planning and explaining the plan to Joffrey, who's like barely even paying attention. And uh, he's like, Your Grace. Uh, <laughs> Joffrey's like, Huh? And La La Land. Kind of funny. Just shows you how, like, he doesn't really, he's not made for running a kingdom. You know, his mind is elsewhere. That's when he notices the the white book, the Book of Brothers, as he calls it, and starts flipping through this book and. This is fun for me because I love these these characters that we just get bits and pieces of on the show, like Sir Arthur Dane. The Sword of the Morning. Yeah. yeah. Who we get to see later on in season seven, when right before we learn the true um identity of Jon Snow. Which Jon yes. Snow Jon Snow is like it's sort of um it's like it rhymes with John Doe, which is a placeholder that they give unidentified bodies before determining their true identity. So it makes perfect sense for Jon Snow to be named Jon Snow as like a placeholder before we learn his true identity of Aegon Targaryen, which is cool. Very, very true. So he's he's flipping through and uh, looking at Sir Arthur Dane's page. And it's interesting. He, he led the attack on the Kingswood Brotherhood, defeated the Smiling Knight in single combat. And... Uh, the Sword of the Morning, Sir Arthur Dane, the last Sword of the Morning, is is the one who knighted Sir Jamie, and he's like Sir Jamie's idol. Sir Jamie looked up to Sir Arthur Dane more than any other anybody else. He's widely renowned as the as like the greatest fighter in the kingdoms at that point. Um, him and Sir Barristan, and Jamie just idolized him and tried to to um, live up to everything that Arthur Dane was. So. The fact that Jamie's page is empty and the fact that he's now known as like the Kingslayer and the like all these horrible things, man without honor, it just sort of rubs in even farther that like he hasn't been able to live up to Sir Arthur Dane, his idol, um, which is it's a real sore spot for Jamie. 
Yeah, and I just feel like in this scene, Joffrey is just totally belittling Jamie for Every being captured can, yeah. and and gloating about you know winning the war and mm-hmm. you know from a from what we know, it's also sad for Jamie in this scene too because Jamie knows Joffrey is his son, and right. so Joffrey is doing this to his dad, you know, and it's like in this. <laughs> yeah, moment true. joffrey like doesn't know that but it's it just puts a whole different kind of spin on you know the level of hurt that he's probably feeling like not living up to his idol his son is belittling him and he can't really <laughs> he's not in any type of position to put him in his place from a fatherly perspective right or even just a knightly perspective because Joffrey's the king and he just has to sit there and take it. And Jamie's not the type of person to sit there and take it. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, so he, he's, he, he says, uh, Sir Jamie Lannister and looks at the like pretty much blank page. Someone forgot to write down all your great deeds. <laughs> what an asshole. Yeah. And so Jamie says, there's still time. And uh, I'm thinking that this probably is foreshadowing that Jamie still has some really important role to play in the future. And uh, some people even speculate that Jamie may be Azora High reborn. Ooh, yes, yeah. I've I've heard a couple theories on that as well, and they're they're very good. Yeah, there's some some good theories. Yeah. So um, Joff responds, "Is there for a 40 year old knight with one hand? How can you?" protect me with that you know it's so pompous <laughs> like you said before i use my left hand now your grace makes for more of a contest yes <laughs> so um right before that though joff had come upon the page in the white book of sir duncan the tall and which actually is four pages which he points out he must have been quite a man so they say jamie says and uh, this is the Duncan, also known as Dunk, from the Tales of Dunk and Egg, which Bran loved to hear so much as a child. If you you might remember in season one, old Nan is by his bedside after he becomes crippled, and she's asking him, you know, don't you want to hear, um, you want to hear some more tales of Dunk and Egg? They were always your favorite. And he's like, he's like, no, those are kids' stories. I'm an adult. And that's when she tells him about the, the, scary the long stories. night. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in case anybody wants to hear some of these Dunkin' Egg stories, there are actually a number of them available to experience. George R. R. Martin has released a series of novellas where these stories are published as part of larger collections, essentially. And uh, there's The Hedge Knight, which is the first one, The Sworn Sword, which is the second one, I think, and I can't remember what the third one's called at this moment, but they're basically these stories of Dunk, who's uh, a knight, and his tales with this little, as he's traveling around with this little dude, this little kid named Egg, who there may be something special about him. He shaves his head bald like an egg and has purple eyes. You should read those stories to find out more about Egg's secret and Sir Duncan's secret. But uh, it's interesting that that Nan would be telling Bran about these tales because uh, these are Targaryen lore tales. Basically, Sir Duncan was one of he was like the the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard under Aegon the Fifth, Aegon the Just. Um, he was called. So 
these would be, you know, obviously the Targaryens had a little bit of animosity with the Starks. So it's after the, the Roberts rebellion and everything. So it's interesting that Bran would be raised on tales from, from the Targaryen history. Although, I mean, I guess everybody gets, you know, gets told all this history stuff pretty much, at least all the, the people that grow up in castles, you know. But more interestingly is that um, the next Duncan Egg tale to be released by Gurm will be called The She-Wolves of Winterfell. So it, apparently Duncan Egg have been to Winterfell. And this makes sense because of Hodor's existence. Hodor is giant, like Brienne and like Sir Duncan the Tall. And we know that Hodor is is old Nan's either grandson or great-grandson or something because she's super old, right? But this would make sense if Sir Duncan went to Winterfell. He could have gotten with old Nan, basically, which would make sense. She would have... She would have um, a love for Sir Duncan and she would want to tell his stories and pass on these tales, these famous tales of Duncan Egg to Bran as he's grown up into the Stark kids as they're grown up because she has a personal connection with this character. There's uh, theories that old Nan who arrived at Winterfell at one point may actually be a character we've already encountered in the Duncan Egg novellas before a character called the Red Widow from the second Duncan Egg novella. Um, and they, as far as we know, never saw each other again, but apparently the Red Widow left this place in Dorne, I believe, and it, she may have ended up in Winterfell and uh, they may have been reunited, which would be, which we would learn in the She-Wolves of Winterfell if it's true, I'm assuming. So it's entirely possible that the theories of Hodor being a descendant of Sir Duncan the Tall could be confirmed as well when the She-Wolves of Winterfell Winterfell is uh, released. So I'm excited for that. And if you guys want some more really fun Game of Thrones material, I highly recommend uh, the Duncan Egg novellas. They take place about 100 years before Game of Thrones begins and uh, they're during the Blackfire rebellions. So lots of lots of fun stuff to to learn from those. Sir Dunk, Dunk the Lunk, <laughs> thick as a castle wall. <laughs> In your namesake. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm I'm named after Sir Duncan the Tall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, Game of Thrones was totally released in 1987 when I was born. <laughs> One can only pretend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, he's a great character though. He was also one of those legendary fighters who's right up there in terms of skill and prestige with um, Jamie Lannister and Arthur Dayne and Sir Barristan. So it's cool. I, that's one another thing I like about the Game of Thrones stories is that the repeated use of the the name Duncan, which you don't really hear many places at all. So no, not not at all. Makes me feel a little connected. It's cool. So uh, what else do you have? Any other notes you want to talk about? I do. I have a short note about Danny and Dario flirt with flowers. Nice. Yeah, that's great. He's um, slick. He's pretty slick talking about strategy, but telling her that he needs to, you know, she needs to learn the flowers and and he's making like good points, you know, like this one is used for this and this one's used for that. His point being is you need to kind of immerse yourself in the culture. And he goes on to talk about the harpy's gold flower. 
poisonous. Oh. And I thought that that was a really excellent foreshadow of the Sons of the Harpy. Because yeah. they're quite poisonous Good in her, um, you know, ascension to freeing her her. The slaves. That's a really good catch. And his sort of um, philosophical knowledge here, his like his idea that you should learn the culture so you understand the people, it uh, it flies right in the face of Grey Worm's statement earlier that he's not a smart guy. You know, it's he's totally smart. He's very smart. He's very smart. You know, <laughs> but it's also great. He ends up like handing her a bouquet of flowers at the end. You know, and he pulls out the first flower, and she's like, "Would you like to walk in the back of the train instead of riding?" Like, this isn't fucking funny, you know? And then he pulls out the second flower. <laughs> Would you like to walk without shoes? <laughs> She's, like, accelerating her anger. And then she finally, like, as he walks away at the end, she's, like, she's totally smiling, you know? Oh, she's smitten. <laughs> yeah, she answered, he answered the bouquet, and she's like, you are a gambler, aren't you? Grace. He walks off, and she's totally smitten. She's grinning as he walks away, and you can tell that that's building into something. And I'm like, damn you, Michael Hoosman! That should be me! I like that she uses kind of the Dothraki shaming in that yeah, scene, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it's yeah. like what she knows, like, would you like to walk at the back of the train? Meaning, like, you're like not Viserys on a horse. had to walk. Exactly, and then without shoes. Yep. Like that, that the the uh, the wine salesman who tried to poison her, and they made him walk naked and everything until he died. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So the the like taking off your walking behind there is one level. Then taking off your shoes is like the next level of punishment, and then taking off your tunic is the next level until you're naked and, <laughs> and you're getting dragged to death. Basically, just different levels of punishment. <laughs> yes. So that was just a a funny little a, a nice little quirky scene, but also um you know, some pretty strong foreshadowing there with the harpy's gold flower and it being yeah, poisonous. Yeah, so really strong. I had to make a note of it. Great, great point. And foreshadowing uh, Dario and and Danny sort of like getting along, you know, doing their thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You can definitely tell that there's a, there's, you know, an affection there between the two of them. Yeah, definitely. Ever since the bathtub scene. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. With <laughs> yeah. Fabio Naharis. <laughs> yeah, with Fabio. Euro trash Dario. Yeah. Um the last the last note that I have is actually a fairly significant one, but it's a very short scene. Um so I was going back and forth with putting it into my top five, but it just wasn't enough of a scene to do that. But it's when Dantos Sir Dantos gives Sansa the necklace. Nice. That is eventually used um, in the assassination of King Joffrey. Yeah, so many important so, things happen this episode. Yeah, it's really a strong episode. And I loved Sir Dantos when he says, Let my name have one more moment in the sun before it disappears from the world. Right. And I thought that, that was a total foreshadow of, of course, Littlefinger has him killed after yeah. Sansa's brought to the boat. So. And he also says... Um, what is it? Uh, he says that this necklace is worth more than my life, something to that effect. And it, yes, like, it he dies because of that necklace, you know. So it, like it really is like. So it's a very small scene, but we, you know, and from a first-time viewer's perspective, it's a very kind of insignificant scene. Other than this kind of sad night, gives this beautiful highborn girl a necklace to wear, but as a 
you know, multiple time viewer, we know that the assassination of King Joffrey is already in effect. That conversation has already occurred with Elena and yep. Littlefinger, and it's in motion. The wheels so are in motion. Yeah, totally. It's a very important scene um, that we cannot neglect to mention because that's the start of it. And of course, we know the the next episode. That's you know what's coming. So yeah. There's a little background information on Sir Dantos that I want to cover, which is kind of cool. We've talked previously about how Sir Barristan is basically Batman, that he <laughs> he's like the master at fighting, you know, the best at combat. He he's he's hides in the shadows, wears a cloak, infiltrates in the darkness and accomplishes his goals like Batman does. And it's sort of related to Sir Dantos because Sir Dantos, like he said, he has nothing left, you know. Um, this is all he has. Take it, the necklace, take it, wear it, let my name have one more moment in the sun before it disappears from the world. His whole, he's the only member of, of his house, House Hollard, that's still alive. And um, it's, his house was wiped out at a very famous event where Barristan the Bold proved his Batman nature called the Defiance of Duskendale. Basically, this is from Wiki of Ice and Fire again. The Defiance of Duskendale was a landmark event during the reign of Ares II, the Mad King. It occurred somewhere around the year of 276 AC. It began when Lord Denny's Darklin of Duskendale, seemingly at the behest of his wife, Lady Sarala, refused to pay, t to pay taxes, demanding a new town charter and certain rights for citizens, and ended with the extirpation of two noble families, House Darklin and their vassals, House Hollard, Dantos' house, and a severe rift between the king and his hand of the king, Lord Tywin Lannister. This is like a pivotal moment in Westerosi history. Since Ares wished to distance himself from his hand, Lord Tywin, he decided to deal with the Darklands himself. Ares went to Duskendale with the Kingsguard and a small force of men to arrest and put to death Lord Dennis Darkland. Instead, Ares was imprisoned. During the capture, Sir Simon Hollard slew Sir Gwain Gaunt of the Kingsguard. Lord Dennis continued his defiance, even as a large host sat outside of his walls, commanded by Tywin Lannister. Tywin's ability to act had been paralyzed when Lord Dennis sent word that at the first sign that Tywin intended to storm the town, Lord Dennis would kill the king. The defiance ended when Sir Barristan Selmy snuck into the Dunfort, the name of their castle, the seat of House Darklin, and rescued the king, killing Simon Hollard during their escape and avenging his fallen Kingsguard brother. Lord Dennis, no longer having a hostage, immediately opened his gates and begged for mercy. Ares, however, was not inclined to be merciful. After all, he had endured. He was beheaded along with the rest of his family. His wife, Lady Sarala, was burned alive, though only after she'd been tortured and her tongue, breasts, and genitals had been cut off. Oh my god. Yeah. According to the maesters, the small folk blamed the defiance on Lady Sarala, given that she was foreign-born from Mir, accused her of corrupting her husband into rebelling against his rightful king. They claim that Ares was too merciful to her. Not one Darklin remained alive. The same for House Hollard. 
who had sided with House Darkland during the defiance, with the exception of Dantos Hollard, who was a child at the time. Sir Barristan asked for his life to be spared, um, and as he had saved King Ares, the king could not refuse him. So it's interesting that Barristan, like Batman, snuck into this castle, infiltrated past the guards, past everybody, managed to exfiltrate with the king alive, which is something only Batman could do. You know, face it. <laughs> totally. And um, he was responsible for Sir Dantos being spared. And then Sir Dantos is responsible for the death of this king. That's crazy. That's, Interest, interesting. Though. I like that. I like that history. I love hearing the history of it because it just enriches the show so much and the characters. It just gives so much more meaning right. behind. There's so much going on here. Yeah, it's like a three-minute scene, and it's so important, and it, yeah. there's so much history behind it. Yeah, this so this act of mercy by Barristan resulted in the enabling of the murder of Joffrey, who had, it's like Barristan, in a way, had his, his revenge for Joffrey dismissing him from the Kingsguard. So, you know, Joffrey says, you know, you're done from the Kingsguard, get out of here, and then it turns out that the guy that Barristan saved back in the day is the one who plants the poison for, <laughs> on Sansa. It's poetic revenge. It's so funny. <laughs> and um, so Duskendale eventually was, after this, was granted to House Riker. And Sir Barristan wonders occasionally, even though many years passed since then, if he had not done his duty too well at Duskendale. If he had not rescued Ares, the Mad King might well have died there as Tywin sacked a town, and then Rhaegar would have ascended the Iron Throne mayhaps to heal the realm. Duskendale has been Sir Barristan's finest hour, yet the memory tastes bitter on his tongue. But saving Sir Dantos results in the death of King Joffrey, which ended up saving the realm anyway, you know, to some right. extent by removing the the new Mad King Joffrey, basically. So, you know, it's just a twisted web of <laughs> of what ifs and what, what could have been. And it, It's true. Yeah, it's that's great. I mean... Barristan, he definitely has a moral compass, too. So I'm sure he does have a lot of sleepless nights about, you know, saving the Mad King. Decisions that he's made. But, you know, at the same time, his actions, you know, again, it's kind of like a karmatic effect. It's like the Mad King did what he needed to do. It got, honestly, it got Jon Snow up to the wall, if you think about it. Because if Rhaegar would have lived and survived... You know, when he married Lyanna, John would unlikely be at the wall. And I mean, it's it's just a whole ripple effect. And we, we talked about this in our Reigns of Castamere episode with all the all the guys of, you know, the future being the past and the past being the future and <laughs> the present changes, you know, the future and time loops and all that stuff. So it's it's kind of it rings true. You just you can't look at it from those details, but I'm sure Barristan being the moral and up upstanding guy that he is, he's certainly probably has lost sleep over that. Yeah, definitely. Barristan the Bold. He's a freaking great character, man. Batman. Batman. So yeah, um, you know, let my name have one more moment in the sun before it disappears from the world. And it does disappear pretty soon. 
Yeah. Sansa yep. tells him, I'll wear the necklace with pride, Sir Dantos. And she does. And she does, which I think is, what if, like, she didn't wear it that day? <laughs> <laughs> what would have happened? It's like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. They would have had to have come up with another plan, for sure. Um, Littlefinger and Elena, at least. Yeah. So those were those were all of my notes. Did you have anything final you wanted to add? That pretty much wraps it up for me, too. So, um... Stay with us, guys, and we will be right back after a short break. In the reflection of a sword, he sees his destiny, and he swears unto the sky, you will not have died in vain. That's Symphony X with Accolade 2 from their 2002 album, The Odyssey. <laughs> and I feel like that song could have been written about Jon Snow, lamenting the death of his father Ned and promising he will not have died in vain. On the field with sword and shield, amidst the din of dying man's wails, War is waged, and the battle will rage until only the righteous prevail. And we're back with news about Game of Thrones. First, from Metro. According to Metro, there is a working title for the first Game of Thrones spinoff show, which is The Long Night. This, of course, will take place during the Age of Heroes, and will probably have us waiting multiple seasons to see ice spiders the size of hounds in action, like we waited to see Danny's dragons in actions on Game of Thrones. <laughs> that's super exciting, though. That is. That's crazy. Right? It's going to be awesome. I, the long I night. Will, I will watch all of the spinoffs. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Yeah, we'll podcast about them, too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So stay tuned for that. Don't think that we're going to stop when Game of Thrones ends. <laughs> no way. Oh, heck no. <laughs> All right. From Geek Tyrant, George R.R. R. Martin says that Game of Thrones could have gone up to 13 seasons. Oh. What? Yeah. <laughs> As you all know, HBO's Game of Thrones is coming to an end after eight seasons. The final season is upon us, but according to creator George R.R. R. Martin, the series could have kept going up to 13 seasons. While talking to Variety, he said, We could have gone 11, 12, 13 seasons. David and Dan have been saying for like five seasons that seven seasons is all they would go. We got them to go to eight but not any more than that. There was a period like five years ago when they said 
they were saying seven seasons and I was saying 10 seasons and they won. They're the ones actually working on it. <laughs> Those bastards. No, I, that's understandable, <laughs> you know. Totally. Oh, man, that would have been great, though. 13 seasons. And the way they've sort of con- condensed book four and five into um, the past couple seasons, they just those two books could have been four seasons by themselves. Oh, for sure. For you know, sure. At least. So then adding the two books we, that aren't even out yet, <laughs> you know, that pushes it up to a good 11, 12 seasons at least for sure. Uh, that would have been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Eight seasons. It's It's so amazing what they've been able to do in well the seven seasons that we have available to us now but i mean the eighth season is just it's teed up to be epic yeah just epic plus with like even if it's only six hour episodes if they're two hours a piece like that'll be great yeah you know they say never look a gift horse in the mouth that's very true <laughs> like you know, we gotta be thankful for what we have for uh, for season eight or for, for Game of Thrones as a whole. Next, from Mental Floss, Game of Thrones star Richard Madden could be the next James Bond. Ooh. Stark. Rob Stark. <laughs> well, Daniel Cl- Craig will be returning to the role of the iconic super spy in the currently untitled Bond 25 film. He's been more than vocal in the past that he wants out of the franchise. To that end, longtime Bond producer Barbara Broccoli... Have <laughs> Barbara Broccoli <laughs> has been actively seeking a new leading man. Several names have already been floated for future products, including Superman actor Henry Cavill and Idris Elba. Again, but according to reports, Broccoli's first choice is former Game of Thrones star Richard Madden. After playing the King in the North, Rob Stark, on HBO's epic fantasy, Madden apparently impressed with Broccoli with his title role in the UK drama Bodyguard, which will drop on Netflix on October 24th. While the rumors are anonymously sourced and therefore unconfirmed, it has been reported that Broccoli is preparing to make an offer to Madden to play the world's most famous super spy. However... All other presumed candidates are all still very much viable for the role as well. Regardless of who eventually gets the part, they'll have to wait a few years for Craig and director Kerry Joji Fukunaga to finish making Bond 25, which is set for a Valentine's Day 2020 release. So that's pretty interesting. I think Rob Stark could make a pretty good Bond. I think Rob Stark or Henry Cavill would make the best. I Henry Cavill with being Superman and also his role in the Tudors. I just find him a really great actor, but I do I do love me some Rob Stark. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're both Bond. How about this? They took a an iconic Amer- American character and hired a Brit to play him when they did Henry Cavill, you know, playing Superman. So how about uh, how about John Hamm plays James Bond? There you go. That would be there pretty cool, right? That would be pretty cool. John yeah, Hamm would absolutely. be a great James Bond, or uh, or Matt Bomer from White Collar. I could see him oh, yeah. playing James Bond yeah. too. He also played Bryce Larkin on uh, Chuck, which is a highly underrated show. Actually, it's just un- I unknown. Don't People don't even know don't... of that. Sh- yeah, yeah, exactly. I, was just say, I have no idea what it's that show is. Chuck, all caps. It's in my top five favorite shows of all time. Um, the guy who played the title character, Chuck, is now playing um, 
Captain, or he's playing Shazam in the new Shazam movie, the uh, the DC character. Oh yeah, okay. Zachary Levi, but it's it's about basically to to sum it up pretty quickly, it's about this guy who went to Stanford and got kicked out, and then he gets an email from a guy he went to school with, Bryce Larkin, and it just a series of flashing images. And it turns out that it's all these images with an information encoded from a combination of databases from governments around the world, intelligence databases, CIA, FBI, Shin Bet, Mossad, you know, all these databases combined, and it all gets like programmed into Chuck's mind. And so when the database is destroyed, he sort of ends up being the like the he is the database. He becomes a CIA asset. And he just like knows stuff, you know, <laughs> like, like he'll have these so flashes. So he's like Bran? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally. He has these flashes and like, he's like, the prime minister is going to be at this location. And he's like, how do I know that? You know, and all of a sudden <laughs> he has like that, uh, he has that, that Neo moment from the Matrix where all of a sudden he's like, guys, I know Kung Fu, you know, type thing. Oh yeah. Okay. okay. And he's awesome. I'm to check it out. It's that a great show. Yeah. It's a really, really good show. Is it on Netflix or? It, uh, it used to be. I don't know. We'll f- we'll figure out some way so you can so you can get up. I'll try to find it too. But yeah, it's it's really good. Anybody out there that wants a good show with a good solid four four seasons, I believe, check out Chuck. Love that show. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Next, we're going to jump into our Game of Thrones and history segment from Ranker.com, real historical figures who inspired Game of Thrones characters. And we covered a bunch last week, so we'll cover some more this week. And the article is by Trisha Soraeus Murray. First, this week, we have Margaret of Anjou also inspired Cersei Lannister. Margaret of Anjou was forced to marry Henry VI to create an alliance between England and France, much like Cersei Lannister was married off to Robert Baratheon to bring their houses together. People questioned the legitimacy of both women's sons, which they were right to do in Cersei's case. <laughs> Incidentally, <laughs> their sons were both sadistic little brats who were eventually murdered. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Sadistic little brats. Yeah. Okay. So next we have Edward of Westminster, Prince of Wales, is also Joffrey Baratheon. As the possibly illegitimate son of King Henry VI and Margaret, Margaret of Anjou, Edward of Lancaster, also known as Edward of Westminster or Edward, Prince of Wales, had a socially awkward upbringing that tipped his normalcy scale a bit south of sane. <laughs> Much <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Right? Same with Joffrey. Yep. <laughs> Much like the illegitimate Joffrey, Edward decided that other opinions didn't matter to the rich and powerful, so he found his own ways to nurture his madness. Unfortunately for his people, his favorite therapeutic pastime was cutting off enemies' heads. Oh. Interesting. He had a lot of enemies. <laughs> Edward, <laughs> well, a guy like that probably would. Yeah. <laughs> Edward was eventually murdered in a the North remembers kind of way when he was stabbed to death by Edward the Fourth, the historical equivalent of Rob Stark. Ooh, Killer. so kind of inverted justice there. Yeah, that's so funny. Next, Cecily Neville, Duchess of York, is Catelyn Stark. 
Cecily Neville devoted her life to keeping her eight children, including Edward IV, the historical version of Rob Stark, out of harm's way during the War of the Roses. She had the same fiery protectiveness as Catelyn Stark, who just wanted her family to be safe. Both women followed House Tully's motto, Family, Duty, Honor, which made their sons' decisions to abandon their betrothal promises nearly unforgivable. Cecily may have overreacted a wee bit by never speaking to her son again, but she presumably loved him as much as Catelyn still clearly loved Rob while she took in the horror of the Red Wedding. And just so you guys know, the War of the Roses that this uh, excerpt mentions was between two main houses in England, the Yorks and the Lancasters. And the the War of the Roses is, Roses is mirrored in Game of Thrones by the ongoing war between the Starks and the Lannisters. Stark, Lannister, York, Lancaster. Love how George Very incorporates close. all these things. It's so crazy. And whether like some of them, I'm sure most of them are intentional, but maybe some of them are unintentional. It's right. just uncanny. The- yeah. The parallels to our... I'm sure some of it has to be unintentional, right? I I can't imagine him taking all of this history and having it all meshed together in such a beautiful, poetic way. But, you, I mean, we all know he's a genius, so it it very well could be, but I would say most of it is. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I would agree. (laughs) Sometimes I think when you just get so plugged into something, like if you've studied a lot of history or if you like just like plug yourself into the spirit of some type of something that sometimes like things like this can just happen, like you're inadvertently recreating an archetype that's lingering in your mind or something like that. But most of this is definitely intentional. It's got to be. Yes, yes, (laughs) it has to be for sure. So the next is Richard III of England is Ned Stark. Setting aside speculation that Richard III may have been a bit evil, what with possibly killing his nephews and all, (laughs) the British... (laughs) You know, that's kind of evil, I would say. (laughs) The British king shared several traits with the beloved Ned Stark. Both men were popular in the North, led their people with peace, and believed in loyalty above all other things. Richard lived by the motto, loyalty binds me, and Ned followed the same unspoken words even as he realized they would likely lead to his demise. Like his wife, Ned lived by his beliefs until the very end. And if that's not loyalty, what is? Nice. Next, we have Elizabeth of York is Sansa Stark. And wow, the picture of these two. I was just going to say, it's kind of uncanny. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) pretty similar looking. Before she became known as Henry VIII's mother, Elizabeth of York was simply a girl who wanted to be queen. Just as Sansa spent her younger years twirling around and dreaming of a happily ever after royal wedding, Elizabeth practiced (laughs) the grace, obedience, and vanity expected of any future queen. Both girls were physically similar, with tall, skinny statures and golden red hair. Elizabeth was so lovely that we still use the Queen of Hearts playing card that was modeled after her. Interesting, I didn't know that. Sansa and Elizabeth's mutual desires to be queen changed a bit over time as the fairy tale was overtaken by politics. From the moment she was born, Elizabeth was shopped around as a prospective bride to secure an alliance, just as the Starks, Lannisters, and Boltons bounced Sansa around because of her birthright. Sansa's story is still being written, 
but only time will tell if she's able to trump Elizabeth's playing card legacy or die trying. Interesting. I will say their pictures are very, very, they look alike too. Yeah, I, given <laughs> that, it makes sense that they went with casting. I mean, I, not that I would have criticized the casting anyway of um, Sophie Turner as Sansa Stark. I think she does a great job. But if indeed these historical parallels are intentional, then it makes sense that Germ would have been looking for somebody who looks like Elizabeth of York, which makes Sophie Turner fit perfectly. Yeah, I was going to say the one of Cersei and Margaret of Anjou looks very similar yeah, as well. Yeah, true. That stained glass picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's stained glass versus a human being, but it's pretty close. Yeah, definitely. With the twirly blonde hair and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But Sansa's and Elizabeth of York is... The most uncanny of all of them. Dead ringer, for sure. What's that? You hear that too? Do you hear that? What the hell is that? (laughs) Oh God, it's birds! Ravens! Lady Sarah Larkham says, It was sad, Sansa telling about how her mother and brother were killed. That monologue was so haunting and amazing. And when Sansa gets the necklace from Sir Dantos, the whole necklace conspiracy started, which led to Joffrey's death and the Purple Wedding. Sir Matthew of House Rep. What the fuck, Salami? <laughs> I like how he is like, what the fuck, Salami? <laughs> it's great. Oh, Sir Matthew, you're funny. <laughs> yeah. Season four is off to a great start. Two Swords, of course, refers to the melting of the Stark Greatsword Ice into Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, but could just as easily be about Arya and the Hound's Tavern Battle. Arya gets her beloved needle back and crosses the first name off her list. Oh, that's true. Pulliver was one of the first names on her list. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important, too. I can't believe we didn't mention that. Yeah, good catch, Sir Matthew. And also, two swords like her and the hound, you know, facing off against five men. It's pretty cool. Totally. It's great. Yes, great point so far. Ugh, that slimy Jano Slint resurfaces gone from the commander of the city watch of King's Landing to a groveling toady to Sir Alistair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Alistair's a scumbag, too. They're they're meant to be together. (laughs) Completely. And what more can be said about the introduction to the Red Viper of Dorne, Oberyn, makes quite the entrance with his Indigo Montoya-esque quest for vengeance. Yeah, so basically, uh, the the Red Viper character shows up and he has the same voice, this like the same accent as Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, and he has the same theme. Inigo Montoya is like, what does he say, uh... I'm Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare oh, to die. You know? Okay, <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And Oprah's like, "You killed my sister." Like, yeah, you know, etc. <laughs> like the same thing. There's some side by sides of the two, which are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The total vengeance. They're Got it. great, Got it. great mirrors. Whereas most of these characters are like historical parallels. This character <laughs> is a parallel to the Princess Bride. <laughs> Good catch, Matthew. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Lady Lisa of House Sky. 
Beyond the wall, Sam and Gilly make camp at an abandoned wildling hut near a heart tree and talk about possible baby names. The crows outside in the heart tree are loudly squawking and then suddenly stop and the temperature drops. The walker is coming for the baby. It is mentioned that the wildlings believe that naming a child before age two is unlucky, which was also a common thing in our world as well, specifically with nomads, due to low survival rate of young children. This scene got me thinking about names. Do you think there is a deeper significance to the naming of children? More name stuff. John's character arc is constructed around his name. Everything that happens to him is because of his name. Right, and it has that other significance of John Doe, which I mentioned earlier. Exactly, I was just thinking Which is that. cool. Lady Lisa continues, the gilly flower is a type of wallflower. Gilly has the nature of a wallflower, humble, unassuming, and lovely. She goes through the wall just as a wallflower would grow through a wall. <laughs> That's I a love cool that. Catch. That's yeah. awesome. Baby Sam, freshly named, was saved from death, and adult Sam is born again as Sam the Slayer. Nice. That's cool, too. That's really cool. That's great insight. Good job. Yeah, thanks. Lady Lisa. Totally. She uh, she um, sent me a thing she wrote about the character from the book's Patchface. It's oh like yeah. Twenty five pages of putting together like patch face theories and stuff. It's pretty oh cool. Oh my gosh. I'm gonna like That's probably awesome. turn it into a little standalone episode. Yeah, maybe you can have her like guest host it, because that would be kind of a great little sidebar. Yeah. To... Patchface is really interesting too. Have you heard me talk about that stuff on Still Smug before? Yeah, I I'm I'm familiar with Patchface. I I think one of my Ravens calls went into detail about his little song it's always summer under the sea yeah nice. that lady shireen sings and i kind yep. of dissected it so killer yeah it's gonna be cool looking forward to producing that yeah that'll be fun definitely sir johnny of house stower here's to the start of probably my favorite storyline aria and the hounds I think it's one of the reunions I'm looking forward to seeing. The Red Viper comes in setting up Dorne and also letting us in on more of the rebellion wars and casualties of that war. Yeah, that's true. Red Viper shows up and it's like this whole sector of the kingdom that we were not exposed to yet is is added on to the story, the whole Dorne angle. So a little bit of world building happening in season four here. It's pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. Sir Johnny has a great um he's he's been working on this this chopper he's been building a uh, a motorcycle it's pretty awesome uh he's he's got a a painting company called Outlawed Paint I believe so uh yeah check that out if you get a chance it's pretty awesome this bike it like looks like it's like glowing and emanating heat it's oh really really really, really good paint job he, he's I have good to check at it out it. yeah I'll I'll post a link or something Hi, Duncan. This is Caroline Collins, Lady Caroline, like Arbor Wine, calling in my feedback for episode one, season four, Two Swords. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to mention was Oberyn Martell and Ned Stark. I uh, realized a connection between Oberyn Martell and Ned Stark, and I, um, I was noticing it as Oberyn was telling Tyrion all about his sister, Elia, and her marriage to Rhaegar and what happened with that. And 
I realized that, you know, he and Ned Stark are both second sons. So they were out of the line of succession originally for their houses. Ned Stark is for the far north and over in Martell is for the for Dorne for the uh furthest south of the Seven Kingdoms. And um they both have sisters that were married to Rhaegar Targaryen and oh. both bore him children. This is crazy. And they both died in in the rebellion. Never thought about this. Oberyn's uh obviously not very happy about how that turned out. Um and uh Ned and the Starks were um really upset about Lyanna running away with Rhaegar as well and that's uh and that's kind of a big part of what got the Starks into the re- the rebellion in the first place aside from Ned being a close friend with Robert he also wanted to avenge his his um sister and and get her back in in some way so that was really interesting to me and I have to say Oberyn Martell is just a fascinating character to me um the more I read about him the more I want to know more about what he was doing and all that he went off to Essos and studied different types of uh combat and he was I think part of the second sons at some point maybe the golden company but um uh he was a sellsword for a while and he also forged a few links of a maester's chain and he's just a really interesting character a really cool guy um and a, a pretty great warrior as well so that was really neat to see that connection i'd never noticed that before and then uh, they do do a few nods to the Duncan Egg novellas in this episode. And I love it when they do that, when they do little hints here and there to the books. Um, they talk about Pod knowing his pageantry when he's standing out there waiting for the Dornishman to arrive. Right, his heraldry. Tyrion and Bronn. And he starts naming off houses. And he, I thought that Tyrion taught him his pageantry, but... Uh, he, I guess in this, in the TV show, he comes ready made with all of it <laughs> already there, but that's a big connection to Aegon the fifth, who was really big into knowing all the sigils of the houses. And he was really, um, fond of showing off how much he knew about the different houses of Westeros. So I, I thought that was really cool. And we're going to see Pod and, um, Lady Brienne get together later um, as a duo. Whoop, whoop. And I know you have your theories about Lady Brienne and her lineage um, oh, as yeah. far as Duncan <laughs> the Tall goes. And we also hear Duncan the Tall's name mentioned um, <laughs> at the King's Guard in the book. So that was really neat. And we do see Brienne quite a bit in the capital this episode, which was nice to see. It's always funny to see her in a dress. But she's talking to Jamie, which is always wonderful to see them back together and um, the Tyrells are telling her how, how uh, amazing she is and everything. So, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to see her connected with, uh, with the Kingsguard in that way. Anyway, um, and then uh, one thing I did notice this episode, which I'd never noticed before, was the Dusk Rose. And I don't know if anyone else mentioned that, but I noticed the lighting on it and just that blue color and everything was just like, this is important. Notice this. Huh. Um, the the blue rose. I didn't realize it was called a dusk rose. I'd never noticed that before. I think. Yeah, I think I missed because the specifics it was Dario too. saying it, and I don't know why I like don't pay attention to anything he says because he's supposedly stupid. <laughs> but it was really cool to see that. And um, dusk has an extra special meaning, as in like 
night gathers and now my watch begins you know dusk is the the ending of the day and the beginning of the night i think there's something with so, a blue rose growing out of the know, wall too it's got to mean something relating to liana it's pretty interesting and uh liana loved blue roses there you go and ned brings her blue roses while she's on her deathbed and uh dario says that they treat fever i'm like maybe they brought her roses to make that tea to help her fever and um to try and save her life when she was you know dying in, in childbirth so um that could have been a possible connection with the blue roses um so yeah that was really interesting that they that they added that and i did notice it this time i'd never noticed it before um and before the tyrells are shopping for jewelry and we know sansa gets her necklace this episode so i never connected that before i was like you know because it was in two different parts of the episode so it was not as noticeable and you watch it a second time and it's so obvious that they must they must have had that necklace made they're having all these other necklaces made it's just one more um getting little finger into it as well that was kind of cool that i noticed that the second time around uh, and then lastly, uh, the Thens. And I'm not sure if that was the Magnar of Thens that we saw this episode or whether it's just a Then in the TV show. But I did, uh, I was going to make a whole bunch of comments about cannibalism in the last episode. And uh, I just, like, I, I didn't get to it. And I was like, oh, they're not going to talk about cannibalism for a while. So I'll just wait and do some research later. And then they talk about it again with the, co the cooking of the crow's arm. And I'm like, really? That's just, it's just so in your face. Because we, we just heard about the rat cook. And in the Red Wedding episode, we're already talking about, you know, Black Walter pie and stuff. <laughs> so I, I did a little bit of digging because I was like, you know, I saw the connection between um, Martin and, and Shakespeare because I, I read a long time ago, I've read Titus Andronicus and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that has the baking of people in pies. Um, and not even to mention, you know, Sweeney Todd and and all that stuff, too. So you know, the baking of people into pies is is pretty literary canon in uh, in the gruesome cannibalism division. And so I wanted to dig into it a little bit. And I just want to let everybody know that um, don't read the synopsis of Titus Andronicus because it is just impossibly gruesome and horrible. That <laughs> sounds fun. And I don't know why anybody would write something like that, but it was, it's pretty terrible. And it was, um, I'm sure it was really popular in Shakespeare times. You know, everybody was like, wow, this is so cool. Everybody's killing each other. But it was uh, pretty gruesome. And, uh, I've actually seen a movie, it was a few years ago now, but Anthony Hopkins did a movie um, called Titus, and it's an adaptation of Titus Andronicus, and I, I think it's produced by uh, Julie Taymor, who, if anybody's familiar with her, she did the uh, set design and um, costuming for the Lion King musical, and she's done a lot of other things too, but that's the thing that she's probably most famous for in like sort of modern day is uh, is the Lion King stuff. And she just, she's just amazing at adaptation in general. She can take something and just make it beautiful and artistic. And so she she did that with Titus, and it is like a lot of it is a bit like a fever dream. It's a bit crazy, 
but it is beautifully done for a gruesome tragedy. So if you are going to like delve into Titus, if you're interested in cannibalism and hacking off people's heads and stuff, definitely um, check out that movie. Thanks. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I, I, went, I went down that rabbit hole a little bit and I decided to dig my way back out because I, I couldn't read anymore. I was like, oh, maybe I'll reread it. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to reread it, <laughs> but everybody else is welcome to. So uh, that's my bit. Um, Shakespeare is a messed up dude. And that's all I have for today. Thank you guys so much. Um, looking forward to the next episode and all the best. Happy days. Thanks, Lady Caroline. Great message as usual. Lots of really cool stuff in there. Things I didn't even notice as well. So really good to hear. Hey, Duncan, this is Zach. This is my first time sending feedback. So good to hear from you, brother. Nothing. Really glad to have you back. Love the podcast. So glad you're back on the air. Thanks, man. And hitting us. Full-time, hot and heavy, two episodes a week, man. You're really busting them out. All right. Season four, episode one, Two Swords. Oh, this is such a good episode. To start off with, it was the cold open. I love when the show uses cold opens. They do it very seldomly, but when they do it, it is awesome. It starts, of course, with the scene in the... uh, the Armorer's uh, Blacksmith Forge and uh, the music as it starts is so incredible. As all the music on this show is absolutely phenomenal. I really want to go see Ramin Jawadi's uh, concert experience, but I think he just recently did the last one. Anyways, so that scene starts with, um, you can hear a little bit, a few bars of the Stark theme. And then I think I heard a few notes of the Reigns of Castamere come in then a little bit more stark, and then Castamere comes on strong as they put uh, ice into the uh, the forge or whatever, and uh, really put the heat to it, and it starts melting. You really hear the rains of Castamere start to come in strong, and it's just oh, that's oh, that's heartbreaking. That sword, what it meant, oh, oh, this oh, absolutely just kills me. Same here, um, man, for real. And the way they they used the music and it flowed they were doing Reigns of Castamere and it flowed right into the uh, the opening theme song really really well um, a lot of times that's hard to do uh, more music stuff the uh, the subtle music when Arya makes her kill of uh, of Polliver in the end with uh, after the fight and most of the fighting's done there's a little bit of that um, it's hard to describe an eastern kind of a sound i think it's kind of the way her soundtrack starts to go when she goes to bravos and trains to become a faceless man um right when right when he she pokes uh Poliver right through the throat just like he did to lami that uh, the music comes in it's a real interesting uh, sound and then as they ride off from the um from that little inn the uh, the stark theme comes in strong and um as they ride off, Arya has her horse, and the hound gets his chickens. I uh, oh man, I love that scene. That's one of my favorite scenes of the entire <laughs> series. Same here, is man. The uh, the chickens scene with the hound, Arya, and the um, the mountains lackeys. Um, all right. Uh, the next thing I had was some. This episode was basically ground zero for quotes from the hound. He has. His best quotes in this episode. He starts off, of course, with "What the fuck's a Lamy?" <laughs> and then Arya talks about uh, naming her sword, and she says, "Lots of people name their swords." 
and he says lots of cunts <laughs> so uh that's a great line from him uh the conversation between um Poliver and the hound is going pretty well in the end and you're kind of wondering where it's going to go and then he just says fuck the king and the whole tavern goes silent and it cuts to Arya, and she has the best look on her face. She knows that shit is about to go down, and she's going to be able to uh, get Polliver. Uh, go back and, and watch that specific scene where the hound says, Fuck the king. <laughs> and then Arya. I actually rewound it and the watched most, her eyes. Uh, epic look on her face. Uh, then the hound says, uh, Bring me one of those chickens. And then they, he exchanges exchanges words a, f- uh, a few times with Polliver, and then he, he ups the ante. He says, think I'll take two chickens. And uh, they talk a little bit more, and then he, of course, throws down his most famous gauntlet. He says, I understand that if any more words come pouring out of your cunt mouth, I'm going to have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is excellent. Uh, moving on, um, this is the second time in two episodes in a row that uh, Arya runs off half-cocked, so to speak. I mean, she has a plan, but uh, it's for her size and abilities, she kind of runs off half-cocked, uh, tr- killing the guys around the campfire, and then here running, uh, they're hiding in the bushes, and then she goes running up to the uh, to that little inn, um, and it leaves the hound there to uh, clean up the mess. Um, another meaning I found uh, of two swords, obviously, they turn ice into two swords, but another meaning is uh, the Hound and Arya go into that inn with one sword, but they come out with two swords, hounds, and, of course, she gets her needle back. Nice. Um, what else? Tywin's plans versus Jamie's plans. Uh, Jamie, of course, wants to uh, stay close to uh, King's Landing, stay close to a certain little somebody. Tywin has plans for him to um, leave the King's Guard since he lost the hand. But uh, that conversation doesn't go the way that Tywin plans it. And his quote at the end is, is another great quote from this episode. Tywin tells him uh, when Jamie goes to give back the sword, he says, I guess you want to give the sword back. And uh, Tywin says, keep it. A one-handed man with no family needs all the help he can get. Great line. Uh, let's see. Oberyn, when he comes into King's Landing, we meet him in the brothel. And then as he's starting to have his good time, the only thing that it takes to set Oberyn off is hearing those Lannister soldiers singing in the reigns of Castamere. And uh, he, yeah, that's like a blood, blood in the water. He, uh, he goes to see what those two guys are about. <clears throat> and, of course, they have their little uh, incident, and his quote there is really good. Longsword is a bad option in close quarters, which I think y'all, uh, y'all talked about that last week or maybe a few episodes ago. Obviously, Sir Barristan Selmy learns that in the show um, with what happens in Marine. Um, yeah, he does. When Tyrion comes in, him and Bronn come in to uh, welcome Oberyn to the city. Uh, Oberyn says, uh, they think uh, we, sh- we need more girls. We're going to need more girls. Bronn nods his head yes. At the same time, Tyrion shakes his head no. I found that was a really funny moment of the episode. <laughs> yeah, classic. Um, okay, so I have an interesting little observation. Um, the first conversation that uh, Oberyn and Tyrion have outside the uh, brothel at the end of that conversation Oberyn tells Tyrion to tell his father uh, tell him the Lannisters aren't the only one who pay their debts and this actually ends up coming to pass Oberyn does pay his debt to Tywin in a roundabout way of course after the trial 
um, Oberyn decides to champion for Tyrion. Without a champion, Tyrion faces a trial by combat, and he obviously would have been killed. If Tyrion gets killed, Tywin doesn't get killed. So, Oberyn champions for Tyrion. Tyrion lives long enough to get sentenced to death. Great point. Which then, of course, uh, Varys and Jaime do their thing, let him out, and uh, Tyrion goes and uh, kills his dear old dad as he's sitting on the john there. So, Oberyn does pay his debt to Tywin in a roundabout way. Basically sacrifices himself so um, Tyrion can do the deed. Okay, the whole thing with Varys, the Diamonds, Shay, and Tyrion. The first time I watched this show through, I thought that Tyrion had sent Varys to Shay to get her to go and just was playing dumb when Shay can, uh, confronts him about it in this episode. But uh, upon the rewatch and thinking more about it, I do think that Varys came to Shay with the diamonds on his own. Agreed. He was trying to do the best thing for the realm, which to have, which is to have Tyrion focused and um, not have the distractions and the danger involved with uh, having Shay in the city, especially now that he's married to Sansa. So Tyrion is uh, genuinely, I think, uh, when Shay confronts him about it, he's genuinely taken aback and doesn't know what she's talking about. Interested to see what you guys think about this. If you think Tyr- if you think. Uh, Varys was on his own mission, or if Tyrion sent him. I agree with you, man. Um, Cersei is a selfish little bitch. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Jamie was away, got his hand chopped off, taken captive, but she's all worried. She, ultimately, it's all about her and how she was left alone. Uh, I hate her so much. I hate her now in the show even more than ever. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see what happens to her. Um... Alistair Thorne and Jano Slint, they still have an old way of looking at things, uh, an old way of thinking, um, that it's impossible to unite the wildlings, that they don't think there are any living giants at all. Basically, like most of the Seven Kingdoms, they think that um, north of the Wall, all the talk of snarks and grumpkins is just silliness. But uh, John's trying to tell them that uh, he's marching down on them with 100,000, an army of 100,000, and... It's the truth, but they don't want to believe it. I love John's line to Jano Slint here um, when he says, I commanded the city watch, boy. And he says, and now you're here. You must not have been very good at your job. Fuck yeah. Uh, I love that, uh, that he gets a good line in there with Jano Slint. And my last note was from uh, Maester Eamon throwing down the gangsta line. Uh, when uh, Thorne asked him, how did, uh, how did you acquire this magical power about being able to uh, tell when people are lying or not. And he said, I grew up in King's Landing. (laughs) All right, that's all my notes from um, Two Swords. I really appreciate uh, the podcast. Keep it up, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Thanks, Zach. Great message. Loved it. Lots of good stuff in there. Hope to hear from you again soon. All right, that's our show, episode 73. Thanks for listening, everybody. And a huge thanks to Lady Rachel for joining the ensemble. Yes, I am so thankful to be a part of the Game of Microphones family. I just love this podcast, and of course I love this show, so I'm really excited to continue talking about this rewatch with you, Duncan. Likewise, and um, we will, we'll be planning on bringing in additional guests as well, even though you'll be regularly joining us. So 
Awesome. I'm considering doing some contests to get listeners involved and you can have special listener guests as well. And we'll be for sure having Patrick and Travis and Johnny back and a lot of new guest hosts as well. So look forward to that. I love that because I love hearing everybody's take on what they come up with with this with this rewatch it's always so eye-opening to other people's perspectives so i think that's awesome definitely i agree next episode we'll be covering season four episode two the lion and the rose the purple wedding (laughs) yeah (laughs) yep it's gonna be great give us a watch give us a watch please rolex Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. If you'd like to call, you can always call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. And another good thing to do if you're going to email us, you don't necessarily have to call. You can record your, your own audio on your voice memos app on your phone for instance usually has really really high quality audio and you can email us audio files like um, the listeners you've heard today both did and uh, it's a great way to get your voice heard in quality audio which is really cool you can also check out our facebook page at facebook.com slash gom podcast and go there this week to check out the links we talked about being posted they'll be there for you to enjoy imp slap Oh. <laughs> We're also on Twitter and Instagram at GOM Podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook and an iTunes rating slash review. Kristen and other Podcastica hosts are continuing their coverage of Game of Thrones over at their new podcast, House Podcastica. They have released a new episode covering Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 1, Two Swords. You can find that at housepodcastica.com or by searching for House Podcastica on your favorite podcast platform. All right. That's our show, everybody. Thanks for listening. A work of art, really. The craftsmanship is excellent. You like it so much, you're welcome to chop off your own hand and take it. Such an ingrate. I spent days with the goldsmith getting the details just right. Days. Oh, better part of an afternoon. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and three and free 30-day tr- <laughs> 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com/gom. The seed is strong. Mm, the seed is strong. <laughs> I'm not sure from Lancel, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, true. And now you're here. You must not have been very good at your job. <laughs> a bastard son of a traitor. Yeah, what, what would you, you expect? expect? I, I commanded, commanded the, the city watch, watch of King's Landing, boy. A, a man's, man's gotta, gotta have, have a code. code. <laughs> yep. Hiding in the bushes, creeper style. Stop hitting yourself. Stop stabbing yourself. Stop stabbing yourself. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and she has her pony. Oh, she's got her pony. <laughs> she's got a horse. She's got needle on her belt. Hound's got his chicken, and everybody's happy. <laughs> Melting eyeballs and everything. Dracaris. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's oh, so gross. <laughs> long pig.
And Marjorie, like, seems less shocked than most people would probably be by the revelation of the existence of shadow demons forged by blood magic. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's true. All right, that's a wrap. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.